Welcome back to The Ideal Cast. I'm your host, Gene Kim. Today we have on Patrick Dubois and John Willis, who are two of my four co-authors of the DevOps Handbook, second edition, which was just released last week. The original idea was to interview each one of my four co-authors. So that's Jez Humble, Patrick Dubois, John Willis, and our new co-author, Dr. Nicole Forsgren. I thought I'd quickly ask each one of them four questions and put it together in one episode. So those four questions were, tell me the story behind your original DevOps aha moment, which each of them wrote about in the DevOps handbook. What is the most interesting thing that you've learned since the book came out in 2016? What is your favorite DevOps pattern or practice? And what is your favorite DevOps case study that is documented in the book? So that's what I asked each one of my co-authors, and holy cow, these questions took each one of the interviews to some incredibly unexpected and super interesting places. Each one of the interviews was so fun and so full of interesting insights that I'd never heard, despite having literally spent hundreds of hours with each one of these people. There was so much great stuff that we decided to break these interviews up into two episodes. So just a few words on the DevOps Handbook. When I read through the first edition again earlier this year that we released in 2016, my first reaction was, wow, I really love this book, and I know others have valued it as well. Since it came out, it sold over a quarter million copies. I think this book stands up really well even after six years in a way that so many books about technology don't. So the book is made up of principles and patterns. So of course, the principles still apply because the underlying principles should never change. But even the patterns still seem right on target, maybe with the exception of a sentence here or there, usually because we mention a tool that no one uses anymore. But without a doubt, the second edition is so much better. There's 15 new case studies, mostly from the DevOps enterprise community, including from Fannie Mae, Adidas, American Airlines, the U.S. Air Force. There's over 100 pages of new or updated content, including so many of the solidified learnings from the State of DevOps Research and the Accelerate book. There's a new forward and material from Dr. Nicole Forsgren. There's an updated afterward, including sections from each one of the five co-authors. And there's a new section with new resources at the end of each part of the book. So I really want to thank Dr. Nicole Forsgren for leading this effort. (laughs) As an author, I find second editions of books to be a very challenging endeavor. And I know it's not just me. So one of my favorite interviews of an author is from Nobel laureate Dr. Richard Thaler, who wrote about his pioneering work in behavioral economics. He was recently on NPR Planet Money to talk about his latest book called Nudge, the Final Edition. (laughs) And he talks about how important it was to him that the words Final Edition be in the title because of the huge effort involved. So when the interviewer, Greg Rosalski, says that he looks forward to talking with Dr. Thaler when there's another edition of the book coming out in 13 years, Dr. Thaler responds, go to hell, Greg. (laughs) So I know that it's not just me. So seriously, thank you again to Dr. Nicole Forsgren for helping make the second edition possible. And as much as I love the first edition of the DevOps Handbook, I love the second edition even more. It is for sure a materially better book on so many different dimensions, and I'm so happy with how it came out. So let's jump to the first interview, where I talk to Patrick Dubois, the godfather of the DevOps movement, and after that will be my conversation with John Willis, who literally invited me into the DevOps community in 2010. My interviews with Jez Humble and Dr. Nicole Forsgren will come early next year in Season 3. So up next, 
you will hear Patrick talk about how DevOps enabled him to be able to do infrastructure work with a development group and for the first time actually feel like part of the team. How presenting those discoveries at a conference in 2008 helped him find some fellow travelers, but how the problem statement didn't quite resonate with everyone in the room. <laughs> His recollection of the famous 2009 Velocity talk from John Allspaugh and Paul Hammond about how they were doing 10 deploys a day every day and how that led him to holding the first DevOps Days conference, accidentally coining the term DevOps. His DevOps lessons learned during his four years at a startup, which involved the entire company, not just Dev and Ops, and his views on how important relationships and empathy are, even in the world where so much of what we rely upon are in SaaS services, often behind an API. And after that, you'll hear John Willis talk about his DevOps aha moment being in 2007 when he learned about Puppet and configuration management from Luke Kniez and his adventures with so many of the early pioneers of next generation infrastructure and cloud, his side of the story of the early days of the Velocity Conference and DevOps days from which so many of the early DevOps principles and practices drew from, how those communities eventually led to creating the DevOps Enterprise community in 2013 and 2014 to now, and how both of our experiences and appreciation of conferences helped frame some of the DevOps Enterprise community goals and ideals, some incredible examples of how these early connections were made and led to new connections, and why so many people confuse variety and variation in knowledge work, and why he thinks that is such an important concept. Okay, let's go to the interviews, and I hope you enjoy these conversations as much as I do. You're listening to The Ideal Cast with Gene Kim. Brought to you by IT Revolution. Okay, the first interview is with Patrick Dubois. So within the DevOps community, we call Patrick the godfather of the movement. This is because Patrick coined the term back in 2009. He organized the first DevOps days in 2009 in Ghent. And thanks to John Willis, who you'll hear from next, I was able to meet Patrick in 2010 at the first DevOps Days in Mountain View, California on the LinkedIn campus. It has been such a pleasure to work with Patrick over the years, not just on the DevOps Handbook, but on so many other projects and interactions. I got to work with him for nearly a year in 2020 during the middle of the global pandemic. It started when I was personally trying to figure out how do we run an online virtual event? After attending scores of them and talking with tens of online event organizers, the one that I really loved the most was the All the Talks conference, which Patrick ran. So I asked him for his help to help us deliver the DevOps Enterprise Summit virtually, which I thought were astoundingly successful. One person even said that they enjoyed it even more than the live conference. So Patrick helped us run two virtual events in 2020, and we've now done four of them using a formula very similar to what Patrick had originally created. So during those two conferences that we got to deliver together, I was able to experience firsthand just what an amazing technologist he is and his incredibly paranoid sensibilities around operations. My favorite moment was when we were doing a live dress rehearsal event. Uh, this was before the second event that we were doing in October, 2020. And while we're watching the video stream, we noticed a strange video glitch that would show up maybe once every 30 minutes or so. The video would gray out for just a frame or two. It could have been a local network issue, but we all saw it. We were running out of time with the real event just one week away, and there's still so much work to do. But to my surprise, Patrick became fixated on this issue. 
I must have made a comment, maybe making fun of him for being spooked by something that seems so harmless. But then he said, these are the issues that tend to blow up on you in production. <laughs> so here's the surprising twist to the story. He ended up opening up a ticket with Easy Live. This is the video streaming platform that we use. And it turns out that there was a known issue that videos hosted on Dropbox uh, would have video glitches because they couldn't be downloaded fast enough to be streamed. <laughs> so we ended up uploading over 100 gigabytes of videos into Easy Live. My idea of uploading them into Google storage buckets or S3 was rejected by Patrick because he felt that it introduced an unnecessary failure point. <laughs> My argument that it has over four nines of availability was not compelling to him. I tweeted about this on October 10th of last year. I said, I'll admit that had you told me a month ago that Patrick Dubois would recommend uploading all video files to EasyLive versus leaving them in S3 or Google, I would have laughed at you. Now I think his paranoia that the entire world is actually out to get you is probably warranted. <laughs> I wrote, for me, this was a phenomenal example of needing to pay attention to those weak failure signals because dismissing these events as unlikely to repeat can lead to disasters. In other words, normalization of deviance. Something happened and nothing terrible resulted. So therefore it must be okay. I quote Patrick Dubois, it helps knowing how unreliable these services can be at times. <laughs> Okay, enough stories about Patrick Dubois. In the DevOps handbook, he wrote about his DevOps aha moment. He said, for me, it was a collection of moments. In 2007, I was working on a data center migration project with some agile teams. I was jealous that they had such high productivity, able to get so much done in so little time. For my next assignment, I started experimenting with Kanban in operations and saw how the dynamic of the team changed. Later, at the Agile Toronto 2008 conference, I presented my IEEE paper on this, but I felt it didn't resonate widely in the Agile community. <laughs> we started an Agile system administrations group, but I overlooked the human side of things. After seeing the 2009 Velocity Conference presentation, 10 deploys a day, by John Allspaugh and Paul Hammond, I was convinced others were thinking in a similar way. So I decided to organize the first DevOps Days event, accidentally coining the term DevOps. The energy at the event was unique and contagious. When people started to thank me because it changed their life for the better, I understood the impact and I haven't stopped promoting DevOps since. Can you describe how much you admired how productive they could be and contrasting that to what you saw in operations at that time? Yeah, so at the time I was working in the government where we rolled in the sun systems, like sun microsystems, <laughs> uh, you know, on a carriage. And then we had to cable this hand by hand. But luckily at that time, we, there's something like Solaris zones came out, like a, a little bit of virtualization. And I remember the teams doing their TDD dance and kind of coding and getting this feedback loop. And while I was kind of automating the zones, all of a sudden I got the, a speed feeling. Like I wasn't installing a machine, waiting for the bootloader, Actually, then kind of for the ISO to go on. All of a sudden you say like, okay, start a new VM. It's like, boom, and it was running. <laughs> like, that was, that was insane. So I felt this same energy of feedback levels that they were like telling me about, oh, you code, you save, you kind of run your tests and it's running. And, uh, you know, that, that environment wasn't there before. So I felt whenever they needed something, I was getting faster at the systems level, 
you need an environment for testing? Boom. Like it's one <laughs> script and I, I got it. And even though you could automate the the hardware as well, it was always slower. Like it was never that instantaneous feedback loop. But I think what I liked the most from them is they actually showed uh, more of a human part of collaboration, which is in a sysadmin job, right? You know, maybe some people remember the Boston operator from hell. It's it wasn't that <laughs> it disperceived as the social function in kind of the IT. You're like some guy in the back or you know, some girl, mm-hmm. and you're making sure the systems work, but there wasn't this gratitude of, hey, you're doing a good job and you did something. Because on the coding level, you know, the, the features give value, but the fact that it was running, right? People assume it, it it's wrong. <laughs> so you never got the same gratitude. And I think when I got closer to that same team, I, I kind of felt the same bond. I started seeing what they were having needed as a feature. And uh, in that case, it was identity and access management system. And they needed like multiple environments for testing. And I could deliver that to them in, in a nice way. And they would ask me in the same way. So I felt way more integrated in their yeah. project due to the fact that I could deliver faster than I was before, where they would ask me and I was like, okay, hold on. Like I'm off for two weeks, like <laughs> cabling and racking and stacking the new server that comes in. Um, so that that's kind of a different vibe, right? If you see what you're building immediately used, immediately you learn what's not working, what should be changed. And then when you want to change this, this gets faster. So I think that, that, Technology change of getting that feedback allowed me also to belong better in the feedback of the business and the, the development team. And then I got like in general agile, you know, the collaboration, it needs to function and so on. Those were values I've been advocating for years because I was always receiving broken software. Not always, of course, <laughs> but you know, you kind of get the tar ball, you get the thing, and then you have no say about it. And then you kind of have to reverse engineer this. So that feeling about, again, you're at the source, changing people, uh, what they need to do, what they can help you, and you helping them. I guess that that was the the agile feeling due to the technology change that occurred at that time in my life that, uh, that kind of changed my view on on the collaboration between the two teams. It's not that I haven't been working with Des before, but definitely the speed of feedback changed at that time. Yeah, in both directions. Definitely. Interesting. And by the way, Solaris Zones, when you had to like spin up a new VM, are we talking about milliseconds, seconds, minutes? Uh, just how fast was it? It was a couple of seconds, right? <laughs> if you have your template, then, then it was just like, almost like a ZFS clone yeah. and hub, you, you had like a, the new system running. It's, it's very similar to what, you know, we would now do with the Docker, but it's, it's different technology, but, you know, the, the kind of similarities of speed were, were definitely there. That's um, interesting. Just, that a little, yeah. just a little side note. I mean, you know, they say that like if build times are more than say two to four minutes, productivity goes way mm-hmm. down because that's the, after you cross four minutes, it's hard not to go work on something else and you lose that sense of flow. When you're talking about like spin up times in seconds, I mean, that must have been incredible. Yeah, it's a, it's a life changer uh, of the behavior because all of a sudden, 
you know, those long dreaded, I write a script and I have to wait and I have to see whether it completely completes by the end of the day or something, right? <laughs> and it takes me like 500 iterations to write that one script and I'm never going to rewrite this again. All of a sudden you say like, okay, you know, I'm getting confident that when I run this and I run this again, I run this again, it's, it's giving me the same result. So that repeatability, again, gives you the confidence, like you're saying, that you can deliver what somebody asks in a good way, and you're not always throwing the short straw and saying, hey, <laughs> you know what, I don't know, really know what's going to happen, but you know, I'm on call and I'll take care of it. Uh, so it, it gives that same level of control, uh, I think, which is similar to when you haven't done TDD and you're changing an existing app and you don't have the tests, you don't have the fail-safe environment, right? And and that recreation, like nobody wants to touch it because you know it's the one Bob system nobody wants to use. And and obviously that same thing is 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 uh, for machines as it is for code, like that one tarball or that one piece in the code nobody wants to touch. And and it's very similar. But if you get the testing and the speed to reproduce then you feel safer to change it, change it back, see what happens. And I, I think, again, that, that feedback loop on the technology side helps the feedback loop on the human side, on the collaboration. And I think if you would now take this into the extreme with kind of mob programming, right? They're not waiting for the handovers even within the teams. Like even if you'd say, okay, I'm on the, you know, you're on the next desk and, you know, I'll send you a PR in a couple of hours. No, we're, we're even skipping that part. We're just looking at the code together, not just for the review. And it's interesting how there's a kind of a, a motion against it. Oh, this cannot be effective. Five <laughs> people looking at the same code right? <laughs> at the same time. What a loss of time. But if you think about the learnings, the things you've prevented, the kind of speed, the, all the things that you're doing at the same time, that totally makes sense. So I think we're we're still at the beginnings of the collaboration in many organizations. And I think it has massively improved over, you know, that period of time in <laughs> 2008 to, to now. But almost on the flip side, that like when a new company starts, they're all about like team autonomy and collaboration. And, <laughs> you know, it's all good and they have all the tools in place. And I've seen actually the pattern being reversed in companies where they say, oh, they're all autonomous. Everybody can do what they kind of you know, think is needs to be done, <laughs> not what they want, but but you know what think that needs to be done. And then after you have like fifteen or twenty teams, all of a sudden we're thinking like, oh, maybe we need to streamline this a little bit more. So, like we're not reinventing the wheel fifteen times, and this becomes like the the opposite. Like there's a lot of enthusiasm. I feel I can control my own destiny. And all of a sudden, it changes the dynamic. Like, oh, maybe we need to collaborate and ask the <laughs> others. So one of the nice things there is that what I found is that on these collaboration techniques, and especially in autonomous teams, people mistake that they, they kind of have the ownership of everything. I think just as DevOps, it's not whether the dev should do it or the ops should do it or who actually does it. It's it's about the affinity and understanding what the other person does uh, in a good way. And that collaboration is actually making the difference useful of the collaboration. And it, it's a pattern that I think on the collaboration side, when you're doing something, the question you should be asking yourself is, 
how is it impacting the other person? And if you think there's an impact, you should ask that person for advice. <laughs> and if that's kind of, you still have to ask whether you're impacting something else. So you can't do it in your own silo and think like, I'm a microservice, here's my API, go off, right, read it. Like you kind of always have to think like, if I'm doing something, what's the impact on the system there? So Back to 2007, 2008, you discover this totally new dynamic and a way of working. So you go through the trouble of writing this IEEE paper and you go present it to the Agile Toronto group in 2008. <laughs> to what extent were you able to share that enthusiasm and to what extent was that enthusiasm understood by the community at the time? Well, you know, when you, do, when you give a talk and the whole room is looking at you and you're like, they're looking at it. What is he talking about? And you know, the half of the room is is leaving your talk and like, okay, what what's happening, right? And it's it's happened to me, not not at that time, but then there's always like the two people somewhere in the audience that say yes, right? And and I think at that time, even though you know, I I, I presented, there were people. You know, I got a remark and then everybody goes away as it is, you know, very common in these conferences. But then all of a sudden that one person reaches out and is like, yes, I think that's a good idea. And obviously you can't generalize whether that's a good pattern or a bad pattern, because if it's a bad idea and only one agrees, <laughs> then maybe it is a bad idea. Uh, but if you're enthusiastic about it and you're believing in it, right, you start seeing other people doing similar things. And, and that's, I think, a good thing. Um, there was a tweet yesterday about, is the customer always right? Like, do people always know what they, what they want? And I think Dan North replied to, look at their behavior. So if you're seeing, you have an ID, and you see other people doing similar things, there might be something there. You, you can't really judge whether it's a good idea or that. But I, I got to learn Jess Humble later and Chris Reed and the people at ThoughtWorks who were kind of doing similar things. And and then I think that's what the power was of the first DevOps days, you know, the year after, is that you kind of get these people in a room and they're all about, yeah, I think we should do something about this, right? And that creates the vibe. Coming back to the 2007, 2008, of course, yeah, you feel lonely, but you kind of somehow read hints in people even if they don't mean it, like Michael Nygaard or Elizabeth Hendrickson, who are also in the book, they're like, oh, what happens in production? And, and you're thinking, yeah. And I remember sitting with David Anderson on Kanban, and he wrote the whole book. And I, I remember sitting in a talk in, in, uh, in Antwerp, and he explains the whole thing. It's like, oh, and like, who should be in the Kanban pipeline? And it's like, I raise my hand and I tell him, I think, you know, the sysadmin and the ops. And the answer he gave me was, good luck. <laughs> and I, I will never forget that, right? Uh, but he says like, yeah, I think it's a good idea, but the mentality is still not there. And I think in that way, of course, you know, it could have been totally different and I could have dismissed it. But I think it, even after the first DevOps days, I thought like, oh, this was fun, right? You know, a good together. But I think because others kind of started being enthusiastic as well, that that drove me to understanding, hey, maybe there's something there. Like, why would somebody fly from the other side of the country <laughs> uh, or the world and come here and then 
want to run a conference in Australia, in Mountain View, or wherever about the same thing, right? And and then it dawned to me still like, okay, it might be the one conference and you don't see a series in it. I, I think a lot of people immediately when they have an idea, they think about the franchise and <laughs> how it could grow and become the big world. I'm, I'm not like that, but I'm, I'm glad others uh, saw the opportunity and took it from there. Can you talk about, you had written how you were dazzled by the 2009 Velocity Conference. Can you talk about like what it is you saw there and maybe connect the dots from there to DevOps Days 2009? Uh, <laughs> so when I saw the presentation from John Ospaw and Paul Hammond, I think I remembered mostly the heart. <laughs> I think a lot of people at the time, when they looked at that presentation, it was more about oh, we got the metrics and the the monitoring and we're measuring everything. And they they came from it from the the kind of technical side. And for me, this was more proof about the teams collaborating and working as one team. So that's that's kind of where it struck more in the narrative. I don't know how it was for other people when you... I guess you were in the room, right? No, it wasn't. uh, It's funny though, the, the... Funny you mentioned the slide that's you remember most. For me, it was the Scotty versus Spock. I was like, oh, <laughs> right? like the fact that there were two very different archetypes. <laughs> it was just the most amazing depiction I had seen. <laughs> that's interesting that you mentioned that. Yeah, yeah. It it was different roles <laughs> at the time, but I, I guess maybe I didn't see that much because maybe I was already infected <laughs> in the way that I, you know, I, I lived in both worlds, like, you know, maybe also doing some coding, doing some admins. And it's always been, you know, from the day Java zero something came out, I was doing that coding, but I was also running it, right, in, in a Netscape LiveWire server or something <laughs> like that. But it, it was always kind of a, on that collaboration. And, and I think you get that quite often from people who were there in the beginning, they had to run their own stuff. And then later that got more separated when it became more complex. And then for some reason, we needed to reunite again. And you know, jokingly, I would say now we're, everything runs in the cloud, so we're back at the mainframe level. But you know, <laughs> everything's circular <laughs> in that way that we, we don't see who's running it and it's somewhere behind that. So again, I feel in a way we're heading back to silos. We're building abstraction layers. We were trying to find ways that we don't need to talk again to each other. <laughs> we think here's an API, here's the Docker file, everything's solved. Guess what? If if things fails, again, we need to work together. So yeah, that's that's kind of a you know a, a circular observation that the, probably the you know if you have gray hair, <laughs> then you start seeing spinning the wheel a couple of times in in different directions over the years. So awesome! By the way, this is great. By the way, <clears throat> just quick uh, story for you. Did I tell you about? I was uh, hanging out in a uh, meetup here in Portland. This is actually where I met Corey Quinn in person. And uh, someone was asking, mm-hmm. you know, Gene, what are you working on these days? And I was like, I, I just had to gush about closure. And I was just talking about how much fun I'm having with all these apps I'm building for the first time, you know, with the, you know, by myself. And I see this look of horror around me. I'm like, what did I say? <laughs> yeah, it's like I'm like, what did I say? Uh, okay, I just kind of, I was like, said. Uh, uh, closure, um, you know, functional programming language runs on the JVM, blah, blah, blah. blah. And I'm like, like what, what did I say? Like, oh, no, you're fine, Gene. I'm like, no, really. It's like, and then I realized, is it that it runs on the JVM? And then everyone's like, yeah. I'm like, so these are all <laughs> operations people. And, and like, to them, all they heard was 
jar file. Like, good luck. <laughs> Memory leaks. <laughs> out of every yeah, <laughs> Garbage collection. <laughs> and like, yeah. uh, it just blew me away that, um, you know, that scarred an entire generation where, uh, like, all they heard was uh, out of memory error. <laughs> Here's a jar file. You know, good luck. <laughs> uh, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Uh, to me, that was like the reawakening uh, that I just, uh, I had forgotten. <laughs> I had forgotten about the, yeah. those days. Okay, Gene here. A couple of clarifications and expansions. Number one, I had told the story about closure running on the JVM, horrifying <laughs> my ops friends at the Sensu Summit uh, in 2019 uh, here in Portland, Oregon. <laughs> this is such an amazing experience to me that I wrote this up in a SysAdvent article. I'll put a link in the show notes. It's funny to me that Patrick in the earlier part of the interview talked about getting a tarball and uh, then having to deploy and run it. I think so many ops professionals have a similar experience about Java jar files. They all have their horrific war stories about being thrown over the wall, incomprehensible and completely opaque jar files, which then invariably detonated in production, resulting in endless firefighting at night on weekends uh, during birthday parties. <laughs> Just to explain what was so surprising to me. If you had asked me in that moment what I thought about the JVM, I would have said something like this. The JVM is amazing. Closure runs on the JVM and takes advantage of the billions of dollars of R&D spent over 20 years that has made it one of the most battle-tested and performant compute platforms around. And it can use any of the Java components in the Maven ecosystem. So Maven is to Java, as NPM is to Node.js, Gems is to Ruby, Pip is to Python, and so forth. There is just so much innovation happening right now. Thanks to Red Hat's Quarkus, Oracle's GraalVM, Amazon Coretto, Azul, and so much, the JVM has enabled me to be so productive. There's never been a better time to be using the JVM than now. <laughs> but after that astonishing evening at the Sensu Summit for weeks, I kept on thinking, am I having so much fun programming in Clojure, being a dev, that I've forgotten completely what it's like to do ops? Is it possible that dev and ops uh, really do have two very different views of the JVM? And so as an experiment, I put out a following tweet I'm performing an experiment and will report out on the results. I asked people to reply to this tweet with two pieces of information. One, which do you identify as, dev or ops? And then number two, type any words or emotions or emojis that come to mind when I say JVM or Java Virtual Machine. Begin. <laughs> and amazingly, I got over 300 replies, which included some of these gems that evoked bad memories from the past. Very annoying memory hog. Write once, run anywhere, and it's running slow. Let's give it more memory. Pain, anguish, suffering, screams of why, bane of my early ops existence, another 3 a.m. call out, out of memory, and so forth. I got another group of responses that sounded like this. Fast, reliable, ubiquitous, easy packaging, brilliant piece of engineering, solid, battle-tested, stable, rich. <laughs> so pretty amazing uh, how two different communities uh, react to uh, one simple word. I'll put a link to the 2,000-word blog post in the show notes. Number two, mob programming and the notion that we're only at the beginning of learning what collaboration might look like. I'm going to read from the Wikipedia article. Mob programming is a software development approach where the whole team works on the same thing at the same time, in the same space, at the same computer. This is very similar to pair programming, where two people sit at the same computer and collaborate on the same code at the same time. With mob programming, the collaboration is extended to everyone on the team while still using a single computer for writing the code and inputting it into the code base. 
In addition to software coding, a mob programming team can work together to do almost all the work a typical software development team tackles, such as defining user stories or requirements, designing, testing, deploying software, and working with the customer and business experts. Almost all work is handled in working meetings or workshops, and all the people involved in creating the software are considered to be team members. What I find so interesting about this is that when I first heard of pair programming back in, I guess it must run 2007, 2008, this is when Kent Beck wrote his extreme programming book, the notion of pair programming seemed preposterous. <laughs> it seems like it would just have your team's productivity. It almost seemed immoral. And yet I can personally attest to how valuable pairing on a ProMon can be. I think it's one of the best ways to do knowledge transfer. And there are so many types of problems we're having two people working the problem, you just end up with far better outcomes and the solution comes much faster. I don't have any experience doing mob programming, but it wouldn't surprise me that there will be a whole category of problems where this is likely the right way to collaborate. Not in tickets, not in email, not in Slack, but in one shared work environment. Quite frankly, I'm excited to get more experience doing things like mob programming. Number three, Patrick mentioned the notion of autonomy versus standardization. This topic that Patrick brought up has come up so many times in the DevOps enterprise community. I want to talk about three presentations that talked about how large complex organizations have dealt with this problem. The first presentation came from 2015. Ralph Laura, CIO of the HP Enterprise Group, so this is before they split up the company, uh, speaking with Rafael Garcia and Olivier Jacques. Ralph talked about the need to create buoys, not boundaries. So the metaphor that he presented was that of a river channel. And so if you use the shared platforms that are officially supported, you're going to be guaranteed to be using the parts of the river channel that are safe, that are dredged, that they can make certain guarantees about, that they have vendor relationships for. But if you need to use tooling to solve a business problem that you understand better than anyone else, you can stray beyond the buoys. So you have to follow certain principles. You still have security and compliance requirements. He went on to say that maybe those will be the areas of innovation that will create the next generation of platforms that everyone within the organization can use. So I thought that was just a beautiful way to describe a different type of governance system that's very different from the way we used to mandate certain tools to be used. The second presentation I love on this topic came from Target from DevOps Enterprise 2018. This is from Levi Gaynert, then Director of Engineering at Target, speaking with Luke Reddig, Principal Product Owner, and Dan Cundiff, Principal Engineer. The story they told was that back in the early days, say 2014, 2015, they had given as much authority and freedom to the teams, maybe compensating for decades of depriving teams from being able to choose their own tools and techniques. <laughs> Levi talked about how it seemed at times that every team had chosen a different tool, creating all sorts of problems. One of them was team portability, that if a developer ever wanted to join a different team, they would have to use an entirely new tool set. They talked about their new approach to standardize. And it was essentially one list that lived in a GitHub repo. And the list would divide up tools into three categories. One is recommended. In other words, uh, we love this tool, and here are all the groups that are using it. And the second category is we haven't decided yet, and here are all the teams uh, who are using it. And the third category is do not use, actively deprecating. <laughs> and so often these might be technologies from vendors uh, whose business models are diametrically opposed to targets. 
these are technologies that are being actively removed from the organization. <laughs> and so uh, you definitely don't want to be using them. These might be sometimes database vendors or middleware vendors, and they're now using open source technologies for them. And that's it. <laughs> I love it just because, again, this is so different than uh, what a very what a centralized architecture group would often do, mandating the use of certain tools and technologies so far removed from where problems are being solved. The third presentation comes from Comcast uh, in 2020. So this presentation was given by John Moore, Chief Software Architect and Senior Fellow at Comcast Cable, and Michael Winslow, Senior Director of Software Development and now Distinguished Engineer. And they took a different approach. They say, we want all teams to be innovating, but not in certain areas. For example, continuous integration pipelines. Here, we don't want innovation because it comes at the expense of more important things. So in the presentation, they use a metaphor of the railroads in the late 1800s. There were over 10 different railway gauges being used. It meant that trains couldn't transit across the entire rail network. It meant that passengers and cargo would often have to switch trains to get between different line segments. So they performed an inventory of CI/CD pipelines being used, and they found that there were over 14 tools being used, and the goal was to create one. What's interesting was the deliberate process they went through. The goal was not to make everyone happy. Instead, they went through a very deliberate process to try to satisfy the needs of as many groups as possible. So they had a scale from one to five. Five, best solution ever. Next one was best option from what's available. Three is not my first choice, but I get it. Second is I could support it if, and the number one would be, it would be a terrible mistake. The goal was to pick a solution that maximized the number who answered three or above. And they did this by understanding who had concerns around number two. In other words, I could support it if, and focused on how they could get those people who answered number two to three or above. It is an amazing story. And incidentally, by going through this process, they eventually chose Concourse CI as their solution, open source, free, and something that already had some internal expertise around. And what I loved about their presentation was how Jonathan Moore said that they accomplished this even though there was no short-term benefit at all to the teams. But everyone recognized that there was long-term benefit to the entire organization. Fantastic presentation. I will put a link to all three presentations in the show notes. Number four, Patrick mentioned uh, Jez Humble, Chris Reed, Dan North. Uh, you're going to hear more about those stories in the Jez Humble interview uh, that will be in the next episode. Number five, the famous 10 deploys a day presentation from John Allspaugh and Paul Hammond. The full title of the presentation is 10 deploys per day via dev and ops cooperation at Flickr. I will put a link to the slides and the Velocity Conference video in the show notes. It's so fun to look at these slides again after nearly a decade. There are two slides I just want to describe. One is a slide I had mentioned, the Spock versus Scotty slide. So the depiction of development is Spock, described as a little bit weird, sits close to the boss, thinks too hard, whereas the embodiment of ops is Scotty, pulling levers and turning knobs, easily excited and yelling a lot in emergency. <laughs> I love the slide just because I think it does a wonderful job characterizing uh, the two archetypes of dev versus ops. But the slide that Patrick mentioned was the heart slide, which is basically a big pink heart with dev and ops in the middle. <laughs> 
And it's interesting to reflect back in the early days of the DevOps movement, one of those two slides would show up in almost every presentation about DevOps. Oh, such fun stuff. Okay, back to the interview. The DevOps Handbook came out in 2016. Uh, what has been the most surprising thing for you since that book came out six years ago? Yeah, so obviously it's a little bit on a personal level in, in a way that it's my own experience. Like I can't extrapolate this as a whole. I worked for four years in a startup and I I thought like, you know what? I know DevOps, right? It's it's like, <laughs> hard, hard. no, I'm not saying I'm not like that, but no. Some people would say, "How hard can it be?" Right? You you do some automation, <laughs> da, 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 and and you're done. Like you know, you have a like an insanely good product and company is going well. And I think it took me a year to convince the team to do check-ins of code and testing <laughs> and da, da, da. and you know, you know, instead of doing Git pulls on production machines and kind of those, those parts. <laughs> okay, so you know, we we learned as a team. Uh, even though you know you, you might have the knowledge, it, it takes time for people to absorb the knowledge. But I think by learning that, like once, imagine the pipeline was kind of at a level of quality which is good enough. Like you know, we had like a, an insane need for speed deploys, and you, we could like release during live production with tens and hundreds of thousands of people live. So we got the pipeline covered. My aha moment was that when. Even if we got everything of that solved, uh, I started looking at like where's our next bottleneck. So I, I stopped looking at the technology bottleneck. Uh, was it that we didn't get any money? Was it that we couldn't hire people? Uh, was it that our marketing was bad? So I, I tried to extrapolate the same concepts of where's the bottleneck in the system, but I stopped looking at the technical bottlenecks only. So I, I extrapolated that to the whole company. And I think we tried really hard to assess that. But at the same time, I actually learned. So for, for me, that was an aha moment, is that each of these parts, they have their own pipeline. So if you're doing marketing, they will tell you they have a pipeline of you know, qualified leads that they need to go through and they need to validate and they need to test and then hopefully they can convert and then they can check in and, and then they can like do checks periodically on the, on the same contact. And the same was true for on the sales side, right? If you're giving fast feedback when you're doing sales and you're saying, well, this thing didn't go so well, we had a problem, but the salesperson was able to communicate this really well and do this in a transparent way that the customers could come on our Slack and chat with us if what they're happy with or what they're not happy with. Right. So it, it shows me at least that the same patterns are applicable to other parts of the companies. And okay, in the end, maybe our bottleneck was that you know, I, I tend to believe that there was not a market with what we wanted to achieve. It could be wrong, and we could have done a horrible job. But I, you know, I, I I I tell myself that there was no market because even the competitors started leaving the market for uh, the same money. But but the fact that there's so many pieces in a company that need to align, and it isn't just the technology, and everybody's actually connecting their pipelines to each other, like. If I do a sales and you're not doing a good job on technology, there's an impact on the sales and, and it goes in different ways. So for me, that 
extrapolation of the DevOps model to a more generic business as a whole was a learning. And then the, the second part, which I learned, is that you know they always tell you keep to your core of your business. So don't do everything yourself. So in, in, even though I could build my own monitoring system, I could build my own <laughs> cloud. I, I refrained myself from doing and said, okay, <laughs> I'm going to stick to the pattern. Like you know, you do your core and you do that well. But on that part, I learned that at first I was very curious, like, oh, we're using Amazon, but I can't talk to Amazon. Oh, we're using a video service? Like, I can't talk to these people. And I thought, like, is this the end of DevOps where everything's abstracted behind a service and an API and, and there's no collaboration that actually happens? And I think I started seeing this as the suppliers, like a SaaS or a third-party dependency. Now, you know, with DevSecOps, we would say, like, open source is a supplier in a way. And, and they're all kind of people or things that you need to collaborate with. Um, so why do you get the support contract? Well, exactly for this, because you want to talk to those people and in case things fail, you get insight. That's why you talk to these people at conferences and learn why you know you should change things to, to the DevRels, to others. So there are other ways of communicating, but in a nutshell, where the first kind of aha was about like, oh, all these pipelines are connected. The second one is, there's also a bunch of pipelines lining from outside your company to inside your company. And that is another point of collaboration and kind of connection of where you need to kind of make sure you're not throwing things over the wall. Hey, I want to do a campaign, run it. Like, I, I won't tell you anything. No, no, you kind of be actively engaged. You want them to understand the business and, and similarly. It might be, and then it's probably more in promise theory on a supplier level, but I think it's valid also from the internal thing. I learned that while you have continuous integration and continuous delivery, what the external services uh, taught me, especially in the mobile space, is that you're going to be continuous re-architecturing. And in, in a way that if something doesn't align with your interest or the way it should be done or you need it, you want it to be able to swap this in and out of your environment. And it's very similar where you would say, like, it's the swarming of the ecosystems of the team inside a company. If I don't you, you're like, we're, we're independent, but if you want to collaborate, we will, we will collaborate. But... It was also how the pressure will build on the internal IT systems. Hey, these guys can do it. They're outside the company. Why can't you do this, right? <laughs> and it's very, very similar pressure on if one service can do it and then the other services do a better job, you're just going to swap. And there's no hard feelings, but uh, it's a better collaboration. But if you want to take this into a long-term uh, kind of relationship, you got to give the feedback back to their system. So one of the... The things I always do when I try a new service is I send them this like pages of notes to give them feedback on what I discovered at first try. And I hope like I've got, you know, good responses on this is that uh, from engineers that say, finally, I can take this internally, <laughs> this feedback and tell my boss somebody's suffering from this. Otherwise, other times, you know, there's no feedback or like no response. But I think that's, if you're building this long-term relationship, this is part of how you do it. And it's very similar to what you would do internally. 
Um, I don't know if this resonates somehow, Gene, with you. Oh my gosh, no, so good. Absolutely, <laughs> this is great. I do the same thing. <laughs> it's, it's always good to have friends, right? Especially in people you depend on. Uh, what is your favorite pattern that's in the DevOps handbook? So favorite technical practice, favorite architectural practice, and you know, what is... Uh... In the DevSecOps world, I actually like the, the thread modeling. And I, I think it's a similar exercise to a code kata, or it doesn't really matter like whether it's value stream mapping uh, in that way. And I think there's value, obviously, in creating the view, but I think the actual value is about the collaboration to create the view. That's why it's one of my favorites and one I would like always start with in in the way that like, oh, we want to understand what's happening. Let's align our worldviews on how this is happening. And then the more people you get into the mix, the more broader your view becomes, but also the more people start adjusting their views. So I would say that's that's probably my my favorite thing. And of course, it doesn't matter whether it's threat modeling or in a way, you could say a PR review is very similar. Like I'm, I'm looking at what you think is best, but let me give you some feedback. And and it's kind of those practices that that I I kind of guess uh, I like the most. And I like them because they're disguised as a technical thing, but in <laughs> essence, they're actually the human side of what I think should you know should be in DevOps of, of the calibration and the sharing of knowledge. That's why I'm, I'm sometimes a little bit sad when t- people talk about GitOps. And I you know it's a, I like the pattern that people are saying, like we're doing this through the CI and, and to the check-in. I would also say it's a missed opportunity to actually work around the collaboration in the same aspect. So why you're not like focusing on capturing more knowledge at the time or on the feedback or kind of make that turn that into a lesson that the whole team can share. That's why I'm like, okay, I like the technical practice, but I missed kind of that same collaboration aspect uh, in, in that part as well. When you bring up threat modeling, it so much reminds me of the exercise that you went through in terms of like, what are all the things that can go wrong delivering an online conference? <laughs> what are all the points of failure? Is that the, yeah, sort of what you're yeah, talking you about as well? It, it is in a way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I think um, when we did the exercise for the conference, I, I would think like when I explained these things, it showed you the things you couldn't see about the system, mm. right? And, and, and that's what I think the value was, is that, okay, I'm not aware this could happen. Then you ask me, like, what's the likelihood this could happen? Mm-hmm. And what is the thing you can, like, make sure it doesn't happen? Uh, and what could be the strategy to mitigate it? And I could have done this on my own, but the fact that you were aware of this when it happened, and <laughs> I, I remember that one time when we had to switch to Zoom because <laughs> uh, the whole streaming thing stopped because we set the wrong hour. Right? I don't know what it was, but, but but the fact that you were aware and that that was kind of like talked through again. It's a sharing of knowledge, and then making sure you're prepared. And we went through the scenario beforehand, and you know what was coming. And I think that that was the. The value of it, you could think of, oh, it's it was a technical exercise, and I showed off, but that was definitely <laughs> not like the the goal itself. The goal was that, like, like a thread modeling, everybody understand what is the possibility. We discuss whether you accept the risk or not accept the risk ahead of time, and then you also understand like why, if you have 
a finite amount of resources, what do you do first? And and there's some things you can't do, but imagine I hadn't explained this to you and it would happen. You're like, why did this happen? It's <laughs> like, no. And I told you, we, but we, we both decided together that, you know, this was not like a, a likelihood. So we didn't go for that scenario uh, in that way. There was this uh, amazing presentation given by a team from Vanguard. Uh, they invented the index fund, <laughs> right? Uh, so I think it's mm-hmm. eight trillion dollars um, under management. Oh, okay. But uh, the, they, was just, they both came from a background of chaos engineering and they're young leaders. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they went through something very similar with their business partners in terms of like, hey, let's just explore all the things that can go wrong and we just want to like uh, understand what is the best business response. <laughs> so some were technical failures, some was like business operations failures. But for me, it was such, it was exactly what you're talking about. It opened up a line of dialogue and my reaction was if the team in the Phoenix Project had done this, <laughs> that would that would have created a, mm-hmm. a tremendously different outcome. Right? It's like, what do you mean we could actually shut down all the e-commerce operations and everything else for <laughs> you know three days? Right? I think uh, that shared understanding would have certainly deflect potentially have yeah. deflected you know the outcomes. Yeah, but I must, might also think this comes from the fact that in the past there was a lot of fear of not delivering on time. Because you know we didn't understand well, you know what goes into a sprint and not like, and then the debt marches, and you know somebody was going to get fired at the end because it wasn't delivered. So that 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 safety wasn't there. So why would I ever bring up <laughs> all the scenarios where it could fail? Right? Like it's probably like nobody would like we wouldn't talk about this. Like it just like. <laughs> Well, let's hope we it goes away. <laughs> Accelerated suicide. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And it ties into what you said before about um, like the the noise and the signal. Like because we want to know and we want to be prepared, we're actually looking into that. Mm. Like even if there's it's a weak signal, we want to look into it because we don't want to be surprised too much. Um, at that time. So. Gene here. Uh, just a couple of quick break-ins. Uh, the presentation I mentioned was a presentation from Vanguard Financial. This is uh, Christina Yakaman. She is a site reliability coach. And Robbie Datesman, IT delivery manager. This is one of the best presentations on operations and infrastructure I've ever seen. Christina does an amazing job walking through the modernization of the vast technology stack, some parts which go back over 40, 50 years. I will put a link to it in the show notes. But the part of the presentation I referenced was Robbie Datesman and the work they are doing to support Vanguard's financial advising technologies. This is a comparatively new and important business area for them. And he specifically talked about an exercise he did with all of their business partners, something called failure modes and effects analysis, essentially going through something very similar to what Patrick talked about. Not only what could go wrong, but what would the business response ideally be and talk about potential countermeasures. I marveled at the dynamics that this type of dialogue creates in terms of joint ownership of the risks, the mitigations, and properly prioritizing you know, how to prevent these things from actually happening. Again, this is one of the best operations and next generation infrastructure talks I've ever seen. Uh, highly recommend this talk. I will put a link to Patrick's tweet on all the failure modes of an online conference. Everything from streaming, video mixing, speakers, interaction, host coordination, audience communication, and site, and the potential fallback measures. Number two, Patrick talked a lot about how do you do integrated problem solving between not just DevOps, but between engineering and sales, marketing, finance, and so forth. 
one might notice that this is very much the theme of so many of the ideal casts over the last year and a half. How do you integrate problem solving in a way where you can keep the communications at the edges uh, as opposed to up and down the organization? I find it super interesting and exciting that Patrick spent so much time studying this as well. Okay, back to the interview. This is so good. So uh, let's talk about case studies, whether in the DevOps handbook or not. You know, over the last 15 plus years, you've seen a lot of case studies, success stories, people telling stories about like uh, how they went from maybe a not so good place to a good place. What's your favorite one? What have you found tantalizing, interesting, inspirational? I remember one when I was really working on you know, mobile continuous delivery. And we, we held a conference and Microsoft came in and they said, oh, we have this OneNote application. And people didn't give it good ratings and there was a lot of issues. And, and I know the team worked really hard to improve this, to make this better. But I remember them telling me, you know what, at a certain point, we decided in this period of getting feedback from the people to enable a feedback button in the app. And what they told me is that the next thing they had to do is scale the systems to collect all the <laughs> feedback, right? So for me, that was like a, a nice you know, story about, oh, you think you got everything figured out, you got everything under control. And I'm, I'm sure they kind of had operational systems running and good observability in a way. But the fact that they opened up that to the feedback and then all of a sudden, it wasn't <laughs> only business feedback, right? It was like, oh, this is too slow. And why, if I'm pressing this button, it goes red twice. <laughs> or I don't know what, but I think it's a good story about when devs are building stuff, why they, they sh- should not just look at their test results, but they, they should actually look at the production feedback to kind of uh, learn from that. And I have, I'm not saying I'm on a mission, but I, in DevSecOps, you have this narrative about dev first and let's do it as early as possible in the value stream. And I, I think it's definitely good, you know, given the cost of when things happen in production that you, you kind of, you know, do things early. But what I don't agree with is that it, it might give you a false sense of security. Oh, we tested everything we knew. If we didn't see the bug, there is no bug, right? It, it, it doesn't work like that. So I think I would, I started saying, if you shift left, you should keep shifting right as well, just to understand that you can't, not everything can be fixed and you cannot foresee everything in the pipeline from the beginning. You do have to be prepared when things happen in production and you do have to listen to the the feedback in production. And they might, again, not be strong signals, but I think part of you owning the service is actually looking at those signals as well. And I, I know people dismiss it as saying, well, you know, this is this is not my job. Once it goes into monitoring and metrics, we're just going to use it to debug stuff. But I, I think it's proactively looking for those signals why you do this. And that's, for example, why I like it. Again, maybe, you know, it's coincidental that it was a Microsoft, uh, another example, is when you go into Visual Studio Code and you see you know, a part of a code that it gets executed, they have a way of integrating, for example, with their serverless code, is that you actually get the feedback of how many exceptions were running through this function, how many <laughs> people executed this call, and then you can even set breakpoints to parts of the code, and it goes directly 
what is running in production. So I think that kind of feedback loop is uh, is still undervalued. And I, I'm I'm sometimes scared with platform teams and and people are separating the layers again, and mm-hmm. and it becomes like a silo on its own. It shouldn't be, but there's a danger of abstracting things, uh, and that somebody who isn't responsible for the things on the hood, they just say like, "That's not my part." But I, I, I think there's, um, it should be visible, and a, in my opinion, a good dev should still seek out that feedback and not just look at their test results or their kind of backlog uh, alone. So, uh, what are you working on these days? Yeah, so. Um, when people ask me to introduce myself, I, I told them that over 20 plus decades, I've done pretty much all roles in IT that I could think of. Uh, the only one I haven't done is front-end designer because I'm colorblind. <laughs> but I think the last two years um, now that I worked in the DevSecOps space, in a way, was a surprise to me that the, the industry that spun up was such, becoming so big because I, I always saw security as a quality feature and as an admin and an ops person, it's always been there on my mind. So I didn't see it was becoming such a big thing. But I understand the, the community we needed to bring in on security was uh, you know, was needed. I think you know, the dev-centric approach, and I would rephrase that to you know, have people decide and do the work where they have the best position to kind of make a decision uh, that so that's how I rephrase things in, in the DevSecOps, and I think when I started the journey, I also spent some time on supply chain, and in that way, I'm I'm still interested in how this will evolve and the more breaches we have there, and it's again, there's a lot of will, still a lot of tooling to be built, and we're not even sure whether it's going to be a competitive advantage on the business. <laughs> So that's a similarity we had in the past. Like, you know, uh, when the blog post was there, like ops is a strategic weapon, then all of a sudden it kind of got proved, like, you know, we, we got more revenue if the systems keep running and so on. But we're still at the point that we need to prove that somehow with uh, security efforts. So a lot of them are still ramping up and, and working in getting the low-hanging fruit and doing the scanning. But the tough question is, like, you have a finite amount of people do you do features? Do you ops, or do you do a security part? Uh, and that's something that intrigues me: how we're gonna ever balance that that in the backlog in in a good way. So that's that's kind of what interests me. And then more recently, uh, actually, I got pinged by my promoter for my thesis way back in the day, and all of a sudden said, "Like, you know what? Like, do you remember me?" I said, "Yes, I'm <laughs> I'm working on." on digital twins. And I think DevOps is the key to unlock digital twins. So his life work was around working modeling things, you know, modeling factories and, and modeling. With Now with sensors, we do kind of predictions on things that are, are going to happen but are too expensive to actually run in the real world. And I, and I started seeing similarities in, you know, the large data center. We're trying to build a cost model, for example. And all of a sudden, I started seeing models and models. Now, why is it that when we do a model for the UI, it's not connected with the final thing? Like, why is it a throwaway model? And then we do this model again where we're doing the testing. And when we're doing the testing, we're turning that model again away when we're doing our reasoning when things fail in production, 
right? So, so I think there's something there about not losing metadata, not kind of reinventing the model, or maybe in a better way saying, like, keep the models in sync. And coincidentally, that's also the hard part of the supply chain security uh, is that we've thrown all the metadata away and now we have to reverse the metadata and on the no metadata, we have to reason whether it's secure or not. So all of a sudden we're thinking like, oh, what if we don't throw away who built it? What if we don't throw away how this was built? And so I think there's a similar dynamic that I'm reading into it. But I think over the years there's been an allergy towards models where when I started, everything needed to be strongly modeled, right? And <laughs> all the specifications needed to be done. And we kind of threw this overboard because of we said like, well, you know, even if the model isn't perfect, that that's fine. And we'll, we'll, we'll change the model whenever we need and whenever it works. But I think reality made then that we're ending up with eight or nine different models in our company. <laughs> So should we start syncing them somehow, whether it's on a compliance level, uh, a financial level, or even in the future with like with your machine learning, where does what run and and kind of you know how does it run? So anyway, so that's it's not my daily job, but it's my passion, I guess. <laughs> it was so great talking to Patrick just now. So after a short break, I will be speaking with another one of my co-authors. This time, John Willis. So here at IT Revolution, we've been hard at work bringing you in 2021 two DevOps Enterprise virtual summits, this podcast, two issues of the DevOps Enterprise Journal, and a new immersion course from Dominica de Grandis, renowned author on flow efficiency who dives into the fundamentals needed to help you better understand your organizational workflows and make them more efficient. And we just published the second edition of the DevOps Handbook, which this episode and the next episode are all about. I mentioned that as much as I love the first edition of the book, I love the second edition even more. The 15 new case studies, mostly from the DevOps enterprise community, including Fannie Mae, Adidas, American Airlines, and the US Air Force. There's over 100 pages of new or updated content, including so many of the solidified learnings from the State of DevOps Research and the Accelerate book. There's a new forward and materials from Dr. Nicole Forsgren, there's an updated afterward from all five co-authors, and there's a new section with new resources at the end of each part of the book. I want to thank Dr. Nicole Forsgren, who joined the authorship team. On top of everything I mentioned above, this expanded edition includes new material from her. She's a good friend and a renowned researcher. She is currently partner and VP of Research and Strategy at Microsoft and was lead researcher on the study of DevOps research and lead author of the Shingo award-winning book, Accelerate. In this world we're living in, where we need to adapt more quickly than ever and create resilient organizations that can respond to turbulent times in order to help our organization survive and win in the marketplace, the topics covered in the DevOps Handbook 2nd Edition are more important than ever. Okay, let's get back to the interview. To introduce my next guest, I'd like to share a fact with you that you might not know. Many people ask me, how did you get into this DevOps thing anyway? And the answer I would usually give is, well, it was just a natural continuation of my 22-year journey studying high-performing technology organizations, which drew me to the center of the DevOps movement, which I've always thought of as so urgent and important. But if you kept on asking me, well, yes, but how exactly did you stumble into the DevOps movement? 
And eventually you would hear me say, well, in 2010, I was at Tripwire at the time, and I got this email out of the blue from someone named Damon Edwards and John Willis, who I'd never heard of, inviting me to be on a panel at a conference that I've never heard of. But I went to it anyway. I was intrigued, and I went to it, and I was blown away by what I saw. And it was there that I met the amazing group of mavericks <laughs> that were at the epicenter of the DevOps movement. That included John Allspaugh, John Willis, Patrick Dubois, Andrew Schaefer, Dominica DeGrandis, and so many more. That event? It was DevOps Days 2010, the first DevOps Days event in the U.S., John Willis is likely one of the first people who succeeded in bringing these alien DevOps concepts into large enterprises. He cares deeply about improving the lives of technology workers in large, complex organizations because we all know it needs improving. We were co-authors of the DevOps Handbook, and John was our probably most enthusiastic expert on next-generation operations and infrastructure. He was at the frontier of that movement. He was a part of the Velocity community at the time of the famous Allspaugh Hammond talk in 2009. He was VP of Services at Chef in 2010, and he has certainly been on the frontier ever since. He and I also worked together on the Beyond the Phoenix Project audiobook, as well as the amazing panel that we did with Dr. Sidney Decker, Dr. Richard Cook, and Dr. Steven Spear on resilience engineering, safety culture, and lean. And I'm so excited that I'm getting to talk to him today. So, John, why don't you introduce yourself in your own words and tell us what you're working on these days. Yeah, thanks. So today, the, right, what it, my day job these days is working for Red Hat. Andrew Clay Schaefer, another pioneer of this DevOps thing we do. At the end of it was probably summer 2019, called me up and said, hey, what would you think about coming over to Red Hat with me? And I, quite frankly, said, you're out of your mind. You know? <laughs> <laughs> you know, Did you butt dial me, dude? And uh, no, he said, no, I got Kevin Bear and Jay Bloom. And I think the world of those guys. And I think Andrew's one of the smartest guys I know. And and he got me, you know, I'm like, well, you know, okay, never say never. Listen, you know, obviously. And then the next thing you know, I'm on a phone call with Jim Whitehurst. And, you know, Whitehurst <laughs> the is The CEO asking, of Red Hat. <laughs> yeah, CEO of Red Hat. And he's asking me, we really want you to come in. And I have some, all right, I, I even joked. I said, you know, I didn't think I'd ever say this to a CEO of a $32 billion company. But why do you want me? You know, and uh, and he he gave me this really really great answer. You know, these sort of great leaders give great answers when you put them on the spot. He said, you know, you and Kevin and and Jabe and Andrew have been part of this ten year discussion about DevOps. You know, we point our customers at some of your writings, your presentations. He said, we frankly want you here for the next ten years to help us evolve that. And I was like, all right, done. You win. Good to go. So people hate the term thought leadership, and I, I'm not crazy about it either, but we've, we've been given an opportunity to really sort of think about the next 10 years and bring that into large customers, and it's just been a blast. You know, I feel like uh, you know, they, they say you, know, you want to be the smartest person in the room, be the dumbest person in the room, right? Like, so I am. You know, the, I just work with these you know, three brilliant men and just get to sort of absorb all these great ideas. You know? and I, I love sort of boundary spanning, as you know, and, and being able to work with people who have like all these additional spheres of, uh, of education. You know, Jabe, for example, is getting a PhD in design transition at Carnegie Mellon, right? Like focusing on IT, right? Like I just get to absorb insane amount of knowledge that I would not otherwise get. So yeah, having a fun, fun time. Awesome. Yeah. One of the many things I love about you is that you are a person who has been near or maybe in the middle of each one of the major epicenters of DevOps over the last you know, 10 plus years from you know, 
at least 2008 until now. So can you tell us about the early days of the movement? And I'm thinking about, uh, you had mentioned Andrew Schaefer, Patrick Dubois, a fellow co-author, uh, Jesse Robbins. Um, tell us about what those early days were like. Why did it take off? You know, 2008, 2009, there were these sort of things swirling around. Right? We, we originally called uh, the Cambrian explosion, right? Because it was, it was just, you know, you had cloud popping in, you had all this stuff. And so my sort of try to not make this too long of a story, but I had been doing work with an IBM portfolio product called Tivoli. Proprietary and big, you go into large corporations and you install like ridiculous amount of software that typically never worked back then. <laughs> and, uh, and it was very frustrating, actually. I had, been, I had one of the most successful consulting companies doing this work. And, and we'd get our work because they'd spend two, three years with a big consulting company and it just wasn't going anywhere. And they had heard about us, about 30 of us that actually actually knew the product better than anybody else. But it was still very frustrating. And, you know, and, and then I, I, I saw Luke Kinese give a puppet presentation. <laughs> and, and I thought, when I first saw him, you know, I was, it was a, at a, an open source, an O'Reilly open source conference. And, and I thought, like, what is this young kid going to tell me about configuration <laughs> management? And, you know, five minutes later, my life has changed. You know, <laughs> like, I'm literally taking notes. He starts cutting me off. I'm the one of the guys that asks way too many questions. And <laughs> we went out to dinner and, uh, you know, and I, I literally begged Luke for a job. And I think that's the only time in my career where I actually had to beg for a job. You know, there was a window of about a year where every time I'm like, dude, you have to hire me. Like, I, I know how to take this to the enterprise. And then I ran into Adam Jacob, who was building his own sort of version of a puppet. You know, that that's a whole story into itself. And, and this is Chef. The Chef, sorry, yeah. yeah. And then um, and he was like, yeah. You know, in fact, he used some, you know, some curse words like <laughs> blank, yeah. You know, <laughs> when I first asked him, I'm like, okay. So I had to work the Chef as the old guy at like 50, you know. <laughs> you know, and it was, that was just a tremendous time. And, and what was happening with, you know, Patrick Dubois, you know, was basically, we had the O'Reilly Conference, right? Right. And so I remember sitting in the back of the room watching John Osbach give his presentation with Paul Hammond. And, you know, I, I kind of, there was the, the 10 deploys a day at Flickr. And I sort of half heartedly joked that people were throwing up in the back <laughs> of the room, like, you can't do this. This will destroy mankind, humankind. You know, this is just, you know, you, you know that the idea of putting 10 products <laughs> in deploys, you know. And in that same day, what people don't realize is Andrew Clay Shaver gave a presentation that wasn't recorded called Agile Infrastructure. And he basically was showing that picture that we've seen thousands of times, which is the dev, the wall, and the ops. He called it the wall of confusion. And like I said, it wasn't really, um, that wasn't videotaped, so it didn't have the lasting effect. But sometime after that, not too long, I heard about Patrick running this DevOps day thing. Huh. And so I, I sort of... And that was in 2009. Know, yeah, and, you know, and, and one of the things that Chef at the time, which was, what the beauty of Chef was, they just sort of gave me a credit card and said, go figure this thing out. You know, I mean, it, it was, it, you know, not in those exact words, but literally I went to, you know, I think even today people say I've been to more DevOps days than anybody uh, has probably spoken it more. And <laughs> I just was able to go. And that was the first one. That was this incredible, you know, I told you I was sort of getting to the point where I wasn't sure like the work we were doing or I was doing <laughs> was really meaningful. And then I saw all these young people, you know, Stephen Nelson Smith, uh, huh. Lindsay Holmwood, obviously Patrick and Chris Byatt, you know, just I can go on and on. And they're giving these presentations about stuff that Luke <laughs> was talking about that was like, like, this is good stuff. And I, I literally got 
completely jacked out of that. And then, uh, oh, and then what? Then that's where we met you, right? So I don't know, about six months later, it was only about 40 people that first event in Belgium. I mean, it was a significant event. But Damon, myself, and a couple other people decided to organize one in Silicon Valley right after Velocity, right after <laughs> Velocity. And there were 300 people in that one. And so, you know, about a week later, me and Damon did a podcast and we were like, we just couldn't even, like, what did, what happened? <laughs> what was that? How could, you know, like, it was just the amount of energy that was in that. And you knew, I mean, I knew personally in Ghent at the first DevOps days um, that this was real for me. I didn't know how real it was for everybody else. <laughs> but then in, in, in when we had it, the LinkedIn, that first one you were at, like at the end of that one, I'm like, this is real. And then there's kind of a third ending to the, not ending part of the story that we got involved. And we can talk about like working together and doing lots of cool things. But there was still a lagging question about, was well, it real for the enterprise? You had mentioned to me years ago about the story of the birth of the Velocity Conference. And I think Adam Jacob was a part of it, Jesse Robbins, the master disaster at Amazon. You were telling me about how that community needed a home, that uh, forward-thinking sysadmins with wild ideas of what operations and infrastructure should look like. <laughs> the first Velocity I went to, I know, I remember 2009 really well. <laughs> and probably 2008. All bets are off when you get over 60, buddy. So, uh, just letting you know. uh, but, um, so I think I was at 2007. Right. I think that one was at the, the San Francisco Marriott. Oh, that's right. That's right. Uh, right. That was the first one I right, right by the airport. Yeah, by the airport, and um, and there was a bunch of interesting things there. I hadn't been involved with Chef yet. Let's start with Jesse Robbins. Jesse Robbins was basically a fireman. <laughs> he still to this day goes to Burning Man and and basically runs like creates a whole village of EMTs. I mean, that's what he does every year. Uh, so he was my CEO at Chef, right? So I started Chef late two thousand nine. I was like the seventh or eighth person in there. I was the grown-up, basically. And so his sort of history was that he was very early in an Amazon. So imagine a fireman like becoming a rack and stack early <laughs> sysadmin. He moves up through the ranks because they grow so fast. At some point, he becomes self-titled the master of disaster. <laughs> Gene here. Sometimes it's hard to keep up with John, so I may do more frequent break-ins than normal. Real quickly, Jesse Robbins was at Amazon from 2001 to 2006. His official title was Availability Program Manager and Master of Disaster. And the reason he came to that, he took a fireman's or EMT approach to how he did infrastructure. So he was on one of the original papers, Lisa papers or ACM papers mm -hmm. with Tom Limicelli and Jesse, Tom Limicelli, and then I'm going to apologize for the other two. It was a woman at Google. And it was the original, it was the original sort of break it in production or um, the, you know, there was the paper about <laughs> game day. They built this game day and, and Jesse, you know, I don't know who was the biggest part, but Jesse, like, like he would tell these incredible stories of game days at Amazon. <laughs> I mean, um, like, like you'd just be sitting around at lunch or dinner and you just rattle off like these incredible Bezos and, you know, like, I don't know how much time you want to spend there. One of my favorite all time is he would do game day and basically shut up the core routers between <laughs> the different data centers. Everybody knew it was coming. It was sort of like, but you didn't know exactly when. And he'd say they'd get, he'd do it. 
and they get on um they get on uh, you know sort of a large call with everybody like i don't know 400 people i don't know and it'd be like okay uh, jesse you've made your point turn it back on and he'd be like i can't turn it on data center's blown up uh, and, and just to pause for a second so the purpose of these game days is to uh, rehearse large-scale production disasters to see if they are as resilient as they thought they were. <laughs> and right, so, exactly right. so he would pick a day, he would tell everybody uh, when they yeah. were going to shut a data center down, and everyone was responsible for creating services that were resilient enough uh, to survive it. Everybody's on a bridge call. <laughs> and they're like, okay, Jess, you made your point. We got to fix this. This We need to turn it back on. And Jess would be like, uh, I can't turn it on. It's blown up. You know, it's like it's like imagine the firemen who are doing a fake fire, and they have the sort of the guy, the person who's playing the fake dead person. <laughs> right. yeah, like he doesn't wake up. You don't shake him. Say, "Hey, come on!" You know, like so. So there we guys turn off, turn on the router again, please. <laughs> it's all, totally. You know, like, you know, like, and then uh, Jesse, like I can't, and like Jesse, knock it off. You know, and then I mean, they would threaten. Hey, I'm going to Bezos. He goes, and this is my version of it, but because he was always very theatrical in some of these great stories he would tell, and. uh you know, his he would be like, "Well, you can call Jeff, but like, all I'm going to tell him is the same thing I'm telling you. The data set is blown up." Uh, so, to be specific, mission critical revenue generating services are down. That's what, yes, but more importantly, sort of like data center to data center. Yeah, right. right? Yeah. In fact, uh, let me. I'm reading from the DevOps Handbook. Right. Robin oh, describes yeah, yeah, yeah. at Amazon, they would literally power off a facility without notice and then let the system fail naturally and allow the people to follow their processes wherever they led. <laughs> Gene here again. So as John was alluding to, these game days were a precursor to what has become known as chaos engineering. And John mentioned this famous ACMQ paper called Resilience Engineering, Learning to Embrace Failure, a discussion with the aforementioned Jesse Robbins, Kripa Krishnan from Google, John Ospaugh, and good friend Tom Limoncelli, who was then a site reliability engineer at Google. We wrote about this in the DevOps Handbook. Robbins observes that when you set out to engineer a system at scale, the best you can hope for is to build a reliable software platform on top of components that are completely unreliable, that puts you in the environment where complex failures are both inevitable and unpredictable. He quipped, a service is not really tested until we break it in production. So in the game days, they would define and execute drills, such as conducting database failovers or turning off an important network connection to expose problems in the defined process. Any problems or difficulties that are encountered are identified, addressed, and tested again. Robin said, you might discover that certain monitoring or management systems crucial to the recovery process end up being turned off as part of the failure you've orchestrated. You would find some single points of failure you didn't know about that way. These exercises are then conducted in an increasingly intense and complex way with the goal of making them feel like just another part of an average day. By executing game days, we progressively create a more resilient service and a higher degree of assurance that we can resume operations when inopportune events occur, as well as create more learnings and a more resilient organization. So also in that paper, there's other great stories of a similar program led by Kripa Krishnan, who was a technical program director at Google, leading the program for seven years. During that time, they simulated an earthquake in Silicon Valley, which resulted in the entire Mountain View campus being disconnected from Google, <laughs> major data centers having lost complete power, and even aliens attacking cities where engineers resided. <laughs> As Christian wrote, some of the learnings in their disasters included when connectivity was lost, the failover to the engineering workstations didn't work, 
engineers didn't know how to access a conference call bridge. <laughs> the bridge had only capacity for 50 people and they needed a new conference call provider who would allow them to kick engineers off who had subjected the entire conference to hold music. <laughs> and when the data centers ran out of diesel fuel for the backup generators, no one knew the procedures for making emergency purchases through the supplier, resulting in someone using a personal credit card to purchase $50,000 worth of diesel fuel. <laughs> So whether in the Amazon context or in the Google context, the result is by creating failures in a controlled situation, we can practice and create the playbooks we need. We allow people to develop relationships with people in other departments so they can work together during an incident, turning conscious actions into unconscious actions that are able to become routine. Okay, back to the interview. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was the original. Netflix chaos, Kong, you know, right from the get-go, right? Well, anyway, so the long story short, you know, Jesse was becoming really famous. He wrote that other uh, really great article about if you used sort of infrastructure's code, a tale of two startups. There was this great article, tale of two startups, and it was on O'Reilly Radar. And, and so he was early tapped to be one of the chairs of O'Reilly. And in fact... Uh, of the Jesse, O'Reilly Velocity Conference. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> when this sort of... We, we called it the Cambrian explosion, right? When that Cambrian explosion started happening in IT, Puppet, Chef, Cloud, uh, infrastructure's code at scale, by the time you get to 2009, right, that's when you see Allspar, hmm. you know, 10 deploys a day, you know, him and Cam. We both talk about that being a moment. Yeah. So I had gone to Ghent. I was at the first DevOps stage with Patrick. Patrick doesn't remember it this way, but I remember Patrick because he went to O'Reilly and said, hey, I really want to do this sort of dev ops thing. And they said, yeah, we're probably not going to do that. You should do it. So he did it. And that's how I met him. And then Patrick said to me, I know he said this at that conference. He knew I worked for Chef at that point. He said, it would be great if you could sort of go back and try to do this in the U.S. So I pinged Damon Edwards, our good friend Damon Edwards. <laughs> uh, and I said, you know, we should create this. This conference I was at in, in Ghent was like really, really insane. And uh, like it was like mind blowing, right? And we created the first DevOps days that we ran in, um, at LinkedIn. Yep, that's right. In 2010. And you were there. And that's how, you know, we loosely met. Like, I've told this story. I, I mean, I, yep. I'm taking a lot of time, but this is my favorite story of all time. I'm on a panel with you. <laughs> and Patrick is the moderator, and he sort of you know, lovingly makes fun of my age. That was many years ago, so I was old even back then. And you said <laughs> something in my memory like, oh, he's not that old or something like that. And I said, well, thank you, panel guy number four or whatever. <laughs> and uh, and I, after I got off, as Damon always does, he says, you know who that was? I'm like, I don't know, panel guy number four. And he said, no, that was Gene Kim. And I had read your, you know, your idol book. The visual, and, you know, yeah, the Visalofts idol book. <laughs> I, like, like, I had had that, like. And it's the same thing when I, uh, I met Adrian Cocroft, same thing. Like I met him and I'm like, oh my God, you're that guy, how I learned Solaris. <laughs> but, right, um, the Porsche book. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. So, but, um, and then every year we would do, well, the first three or four years, maybe five years, we did the two-day conference piggyback. And one other really cool and, and thing. By the way, my feeling of being there, I remember seeing Patrick Dubois play the Charlie Chaplin movie and then the, the I, I Love Lucy Except of like yeah, the yeah, chocolate, the, the, the candy, the chocolate, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. and my feeling was like, "Holy cow, th this is my crowd that I always been looking for." And, and what was amazing was that because it was self-selected, the people who stuck around after right. an insane Velocity conference, they were that crowd too. I mean, it was yeah, just, well, it, it was a diehards. Though that was the next story I was going to tell, which was when we were doing the planning. First off, the first thing I had to do is go to Jesse and say, 
you'd think O'Reilly would be upset if we run this conference right after your conference. And and Jesse asked and they said, I don't care. You're like, like at that point, nobody <laughs> even knows what DevOps is. So they're like, sure, go ahead. You can't use our name or anything like that. And then the other debate was, should we do it before? And everybody said, no, no, like that, that's not going to work. You know, you got to have velocity. Because at that time, velocity was the go-to place. You know, I mean, like if you were doing what we do now, you needed to be at velocity. Everybody that worldwide, it was the one place where, you know, Ben Rockwood, Patrick, you just list the people. So we then said, okay, it's going to be the two days after. And then the debate was wait a minute, we all know that velocity is this insane, like open up your head and just dump brain fuel in. Would people really be up for another day or two <laughs> of this kind of activity? And we said, you know, flip the coin and said, you know what, we just got to do it. And I remember being on the second day, I think it was a two day, second day at like three o'clock. So it was like, it's just the thing. DevOps Ghent, DevOps Ghent was great. Eight, nine months later, there's 300 people at LinkedIn. Like this is a whole different ball game. And two days after Velocity, <laughs> at like three o'clock um, on one of the second day sessions, there's still about 280 people <laughs> in that room. And I'm like, you know what? Now I really know this is real. Because all our fears about people not wanting to stick around for the next two days if they'd have just been... And again, for people listening that weren't in the early days of Velocity, I mean, it was... You were just, you know, I was watching one of your old, pre I watched one of your puppet conf presentations the other day. So it's <laughs> weird. We watched, I, I watched, we watched Ben Rockwood's original and it just, it rolled into your <laughs> puppet conf. And, um, and I remember you had put up to, I think it was John Jenkins, Amazon numbers, the thousand. Oh, right. <laughs> That's right. Uh, 11,000 deployments per day. And you know, right? that came from Velocity. It was That's a presentation right. that he did at Velocity, right? Yeah. Anyway, that, I think it's, um, that's when I knew like this is for real. And by the way, let's talk about who was there at Velocity. I'm just uh, kind of conjuring up the memories. I mean, so it was uh, Facebook, Amazon, and Netflix was there. The Theo Schlossenberg, like he was like he was, oh, uh, was his company, and yep. then it was Archer. Archer with his um, Fastly. Fastly, Fastly was right. there, <laughs> and they were big in those days. Like you know, like they're big now. They went IPO'd and all, but like they had the team of people. Yeah, yeah. What a perfect stage. Of people already primed, thinking in a DevOpsy like way. Yeah, but you know what happened there is that Damon and I and you, we I think that we eventually got you on board. That so <laughs> I remember watching Allspark give a presentation, you know, maybe 2010 or something, about how they did change management. You know, and you know my background is we're working with Chase Manhattan Bank, like you know, where change management is circuits and it's just, it, you know, idle service management. It's serious stuff. I High mean, outage cost adequate. environment. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. These are very like changes for like circuits. So I'm watching John and 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 you know, I love John Ospar, but to him it seemed like a novel idea. And I'm thinking, man, if we could create a conference where I could bring some of the people I worked with at B of A and Chase and JP Morgan Chase, and they could come in and at the same conference. And this is way too far ahead of its time, right? And give presentations in the same conference with John. It'd be that sort of John would sit on on their sessions and say, "Oh, wow, that's interesting. That's a much more complex scale problem." And they would sit in on John's presentation of people like John and go, "Oh my goodness, we're doing it all wrong." Like so, that was like I wanted to make that happen. We couldn't make it happen with Velocity. It was finally IT Revolution and DevOps Enterprise Summit where we put out the shingle 
And boy, we saw that first RFP was like, oh my God. So do you know who I met at the Velocity Conference and at ChefConf 2012, Uh 2013, Jason Cox, then Director of Engineering at Disney. (laughs) In fact, uh, so among all those unicorns, uh, you know, Right. Web startup companies or, or Disney people. Well, <laughs> well, again, ChefCon is where I met Courtney, right? Like ChefCon, oh. like ChefCon was Jason, Courtney. I mean, I, I, like I'd have to shake my memory. Really? Brands, but like there were so many influential people in the early. Because the thing about, you know, one more sort of like historian, you know, sort of view or observation from my perspective is that Puppet had done a great job pre-cloud. They were in all the universities. They were running at Facebook at scale. They were they were running in certain at Google. They were running. It was the really only way to do real scale infrastructure as code. Or in fact, I take that back. Facebook was running CF Engine. Uh, yeah. This is hundred thousand plus server deployments. Yeah, it's crazy. Yeah, this is, this is <laughs> in fact the way I met Adam Jacob was so I met Luke first at Oscom. <laughs> I wrote about this in the first DevOps handbook, but uh, as you know, my sort of overview, which is. A friend of mine in an OSCON in like 2007 or six, I don't know, it's probably seven. I go to OSCON, I don't know anything about open source. You know, I'm getting in fights with Tim O'Reilly and, and Mark Shuttleworth. <laughs> you know me, right? Uh, but somebody says, oh, you've got to go see this um, session on this thing called Puppet. I'm like, what is it? They're like, a monitoring tool. Yeah, I'm all in monitoring. It wasn't a monitoring tool. And I'm sitting <laughs> in the back room and I'm watching this young kid talk about config works, man. And I've said this and I think in the original DevOps handbook where I said he changed my life. Okay. I'm in the front row. I'm like, oh my God, everything I've been doing for the last 15 years is wrong. And then I ran, and then Adam Jacob, talking about scale, Adam Jacob, he was killing it with Puppet in the uh, Seattle area. He had a consulting company who were the best Puppet consultants. That's right. That's right. And, and, um, and, and, and it's really two funny stories here. One is I had been doing some podcasts with Luke and having a lot of dialogues with Luke and lurking with Puppet. And I saw this presentation or Luke said, hey, you ought to check this guy out. He just did a Facebook application where they they implemented 5,000 bare metal servers in like, you know, I don't know, three days or two. It's going to be crazy. So I, I immediately called Patrick when I found out he was going to call Adam up and I, I tracked him down and and then he, I did a podcast with him. And then it was at that O'Reilly in 2009 where I'd asked Luke for a job one more time. And Luke <laughs> said no. And I literally was walking away going, you know, I hate that guy. I'm so pissed. And Adam Jacob says to me, he sees me. He says, John, why are you so down in the dumps? I'm like, you know what? Maybe I'll ask him for a job. <laughs> like, and I'm feeling like maybe I Peter Pinsel, Pinsel, like these young kids. Like, I, like I, I've gone a bridge too far on this. On what I can. And I go to Adam like, golly gee, you know, you think any kind of heck why you'd want to hire me at your new startup and show? <laughs> And he throws out his fist at me and he does a curse word like, yeah. And, uh, <laughs> and, and they hired me. So uh, there again, there's so many memories of Velocity, right? Like I literally, the, the sort of the fist bump hire from Adam Jacob was literally on, sitting on a couch. Uh, this, this, this one was actually when they moved it to uh, uh, San Jose. Mm-hmm. Remember the San Jose? Uh, uh, high Convention Center in San Jose. He was sitting yeah. on one of the sort of corridor couches and said, John, why are you so dumb? And I'm like, yeah. Like, like one other point, Gene, too, is um, you, you sort of alluded to this. The thing about DevOps days 
and, and velocity was we knew every year that everybody that you wanted to meet was going to be at velocity. And they knew that we were going to run DevOps days. So it was basically like, like Ben Rockwood and John Osbar, and we just go down the list, Theo, Jesse, and Adam, and Luke, um, James Turnbull. I mean, just you mm. go down the list, right? You knew they were all going to be there. What, like, if you're a geek, like, that, what other place on the planet would you want to be? And usually they were in early June sometime, then, you know, wherever that sort of combo was. And that happened yeah. for three or four years in a row. I remember those times. This has been around 2013. And we wanted to see if we can get an enterprise track created at the Velocity oh, Conference. Yeah, yeah. And I felt like we were winning. Uh, we had uh, yeah, yeah. we had Jess Humble there uh, lobbying for this, as well as Adam Jacob and you and Damon. And I, I, we had one session on this, and yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it warranted a second session on it. And then I remember when sort of all the air left the room. <laughs> it was um, two people. One of them said, you know, the Exxon Mobiles and the Chase uh, Banks and the so forth, they're not like us. We don't want them here. Yeah, and, I remember no, Adam, yeah, yeah. and I remember Adam Jacobs saying, I've got news for you. They're already here. <laughs> they're at the well, bar hanging out with us. That was just the thing in early on. If I could have got the, the person who ran configuration and change at J.P. Morgan Chase in Ohio, right, um, Columbus, you know, and John to see each other's presentations. Yeah. Like, I think the world would have changed earlier. But the problem was there was already very tight real estate for sessions. Yeah. And then the idea of sort of bringing in the enterprise, which probably the web people would have been like, no way, right? <laughs> and, uh, and and even the sysadmins. You remember in the early days, going to like Lisa groups and, and some of these old timer sysadmins, I, I remember being in, in Boston one time at a local meetup. And again, I'm adding my literary license, but I felt like I was getting chased down the streets with pitchforks because I was talking about chef. Oh. <laughs> like, what if it runs away with the systems? What if it just starts rebooting? What if it, like, like they thought it was like the, 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 that movie, you know, the war games, you know? Right. Like, uh, okay. It's immoral. I, it's, 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 <laughs> in the early days, like, there were a lot of sysadmins who were like, that's cowboy stuff. Like, <laughs> we don't want that stuff in our sort of sysadmin purity. So anyway, it is. But you're right. I, I think it was great that you sort of brought this up about. I even myself, I have such fond memories of Velocity. You know, Riley in general, because like I said, Oscon. I don't think if I would have sat in on Luke's presentation, I wouldn't. I wouldn't have had the journey I had. But like, it just shows how. Conferences are amazing when you can attract oh, oh. like-minded thinkers and who are truly visionary. And by the way, I remember the way I described DevOps Enterprise 2014 that uh, we finally got going, right? Because we couldn't get started within the Velocity Conference. It was it was incredible. It, it was a sense that there was something genuinely momentous happening, right? That everyone felt there was a universality to their problems that was felt regardless of what industry you were in, how old the company, what industry. I mean, it was just it was it was magical. Oh. And you, I think the, the one, like it was a couple of years ago you said it, but like it's always in my mind business. You said there's no velvet rope here. And I thought that was so like, that's, you know, that was the best way to describe this place. You know, I have a great story. You're going to love this. So I had met Dwayne Holmes over at Marriott. And I'm like, <laughs> this guy 
is the deal, right? And we tried to get him to speak, but Marriott. Well, no, no, he, sp- he spoke. Uh, in well, I know, but it took a few years, right? Oh, oh yeah. He, yeah, because he had to <laughs> go actually took him leaving <laughs> that company. And, and I had gotten John Resin to, like, the, you know, yeah. the, 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 you know, from the time he was at KeyBank, now he's at PNC, right? John Resitowski. And I realized these two guys, people, like, especially me as an infrastructure freak and, like, like, oh, my God, I've got to get these two guys together. So Dwayne came to Marriott, but he wasn't able to speak, right? And so we went in the speaker's room. And I'm like, like, fly on the wall. I'm like, I need you two to meet each other. And they were like sort of tigers, like, what do you do for this? You can see they have such yeah. a level of expertise, they're not going to waste their time. Right. And, how, just like, how good are you? <laughs> exactly. And it wasn't an ego way because everybody knows those guys, like, no ego at all. But um, – but like, it didn't take very long to say, start uh, questions about, well, how do you deal with a vendor that, does, you know, it was like, oh my God, <laughs> I'm sitting there like, this is, in, you got Marriott and a major bank having discussions from anywhere from vendor relations to how do you run Nginx? I mean, this is, I'm sitting there, guess who's sitting to the left of me? Mm. Steven Spear. Oh, that's right. <laughs> and I, I turn to him because, I, you know me, when I'm around him, I can't stop asking him questions, right? Like, I'm like, you know, what do you think about this? What do you think? And I turn to him and I say, you know what? This is the only time I think ever where you're sitting next to me and I won't be talking to you. I've got to listen to this conversation of Dwayne Holmes and John Resitowski. Like, I, you know, I don't even think he got it, but I'm like, you know. But I, I was saying to myself, in what universe would I not be, you know, chewing Dr. Steven Spears' ear off <laughs> if I'm sitting next to him in the speaker room, except for I got John Razatowski talking about large-scale <laughs> infrastructure DevOps at a large bank and Dwayne Holmes running. Dwayne Holmes at the time ran 60 to $70 billion of Marriott generating revenue through Docker and Kubernetes. Yeah. And that was five years ago. Right. Uh, earning him the title of a, a Google... Uber title. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, he's got like those crazy certifications. You know, in fact, what I do at DOS mostly is bring people to other people. Yeah. I watch most of the session, you know, except for Jason Cox, which can't get recorded. I know all the other ones are recorded. So yeah. generally, I spend a lot of time going with John. Is there any way you could introduce me to this person? I'm like, let's huh. go look for him. You know, and then like, I, I just say, like, here you go. So I spend a lot. That's one of the things I love. Because then I get to sit in and listen on the conversation. <laughs> Reminds yeah, me I, of that saying, uh, you're only as good as the top five people you hang out with. Even just to yeah. listen to them interact, right? How much you learn just by uh, osmosis. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, Dwayne works with John now, right? Yeah. You know, so when, yeah. So, I mean, like, like I put those two together. And when John found out he was basically leaving Marriott, he literally hung up on me and said, I got to get, I'll get back to you. I got to <laughs> <laughs> So. Oh, that's great. Hey, John, this is uh, really good stuff. Um, yeah, you know me. I'm the historian here, right? <laughs> Gene here. I hope you're having even a fraction as much fun as I'm having hearing about the early scene around DevOps days and the O'Reilly conference over 10 years ago. Part of me thinks it might be a little self-indulgent, but I thought it was so interesting to hear the stories about how DevOps days came to be, its relationship with the Velocity Conference, and how it even led us to creating the DevOps Enterprise Conference in 2014. So here are a couple of clarifications. One, Dwayne Holmes was Senior Director of DevSecOps and Enterprise Platforms at Marriott. He gave a presentation in 2020 about the platforms he developed that, as John mentioned, was supporting over $30 billion of annual revenue. (laughs) 
I was so delighted that he was finally able to share his story, even though it was anonymized in the DevOps Enterprise video, which among other things, earned him the title of Google Cloud Certified Fellow, having built and managed one of the world's largest Kubernetes installations. Looking at the uh, Google Cloud page on this, uh, there are fewer than 50 people with this highest level of certification. <laughs> I'm reading, the Google Cloud Certified Fellow program is for elite cloud architects and technical leaders who are expert in designing enterprise solutions. The program recognizes individuals with deep technical expertise who can translate business requirements into technical solutions using Anthos and Google Cloud. Number two, John mentioned John Rezatarski. He is phenomenal. He attended DevOps Enterprise 2016, back when he was director of DevOps at KeyBank. I didn't meet him then. John actually introduced me to him, telling me that I had to hear about what he did after he got back from the conference. Because apparently, he went back to KeyBank with a sense of mission and took advantage of a crisis that was the entire consumer banking property going down and used that to spark a revolution of his own and ended up presenting at DevOps Enterprise 2017. In 2019, John became SVP of Technology Infrastructure at PNC Bank. He's another amazing person I met at a conference whose work I admire. And I love that Dwayne Holmes is now working for John Rez. Another great example of how the world works. Number three, John mentioned a paper that Jesse Robbins wrote called Operations as a Competitive Advantage. And by the way, Patrick also mentioned this paper in his interview. So Jesse Robbins published this article in 2007 as a part of O'Reilly Radar, the same year that he became one of the co-chairs of the Velocity Conference. This is a famous paper in the ops community because it describes how ops shouldn't be an afterthought as we typically viewed it. And as John described it, it's really the tale of two startups, both having to deal with a user base that is doubling every week, swamping all server capacity. In the first startup, the ops team is spending more than half their time racking and stacking new servers, trying to get new capacity online with their workload growing linearly. The number of hours as graphed is growing almost at a 45 degree angle. In the second startup, the ops team is using automation. In their case, Puppet, the company that was founded by Luke Canise that John referred to, to automate server provisioning, and they are spending less than 5% of their time scaling capacity and managing operations. So this is what Jesse Robbins called operations as the secret sauce, the competitive advantage that was a make or break capability for web 2.0 companies trying to keep up with user growth. Number four, I had mentioned that I met Jason Cox from Disney, who is so prominently featured in a DevOps handbook at a ChefConf. You might have heard me react when John said that that's when he met Courtney Kessler too, another person who was prominently featured in the book. I did not know that that's where John had met her. I met her at Velocity 2013, back when she was a senior director and later VP of technology at Nordstrom and later at Starbucks and Nike, and she is now CTO at Zulily. And you will hear John talk about why Courtney's Nordstrom case study is his favorite case study in the DevOps handbook later. Number five, John mentioned the notion of no velvet ropes at DevOps Enterprise. That's something that's always been very important to me. As you can hopefully tell, I really love conferences. I feel like I owe so much of my entire career to conferences. I met every one of my co-authors at a conference. I'm pretty sure I met almost every one of the IT Revolution authors at a conference. So much of what I learned that went into the Phoenix Project and the DevOps Handbook I learned at a conference. In fact, I learned about closure at a conference. That was from Mike Nygaard <laughs> at Velocity 2013. So many people who I cite in the Idealcast 
I met at a conference. I had a real reason to think about this in 2019 as the world was locking down during the global pandemic and every conference had to move to a virtual format. In support of this, I wrote an 8,000 word blog post called My Love Letter to Conferences to Better Understand What Made Great Conferences So Great. How are they structured to create that magical dynamic that John and I were talking about in the Velocity Conference context? John and I are talking about some of those magical dynamics where you learn from incredible talks, you're exhilarated by being surrounded by the best in the game, you find fellow travelers who not only share similar goals, but you also experience similar struggles that you hope to conquer together and so much more. And I wrote, the connections you make at conferences often lead to lifelong friendships and maybe can even change your career. No doubt <laughs> they can change your career. I'll put a link to that blog article in the show notes, which also includes something that touched me very deeply. I went through all the pictures I had taken at conferences over the last 15 years. Conferences about DevOps, information security, audit, operations, the ITIL community. And I picked 800 of them <laughs> that I put together in a YouTube movie and in one insane picture that I think is like 19,000 pixels tall. <laughs> and I think I even tweeted out that picture at mentioning every person whose picture I found. <laughs> and yet, as great as all those experiences are, there are some feelings I've had at conferences that I wouldn't want anyone to feel at a conference ever. Sometimes I felt like I was on the wrong side of the velvet rope. In other words, all the people that I wanted to talk to were on the other side of that velvet rope, and there was just no way to get on the other side of it. Sometimes I would find myself in a sea of people, and I wish I could just find someone to talk to about any number of topics that I wanted to learn more about. So there's a ton of things we deliberately do to make sure that these velvet ropes don't exist, whether it was accidental or intentional. Uh, for example, I asked every speaker to end with a slide that describes the help they're looking for. That creates opportunities for people to help each other. And so my personal goal is that we help foster a community that is actively helping each other. Number six, I love how John uh, is very deliberate about how he wants to spend his time at conferences. He mentioned at DevOps Enterprise, he loves helping connect people with each other and being a part of those interactions. <laughs> I just want to point out that the best conference experiences I have found tend to involve planning and being very intentional. Networking is more than just being friendly. It's about finding the right people to help you achieve your own goals, whether it's finding people with certain expertise, finding people with connections, whether you're looking for helpers or fellow travelers. By the way, I should talk about some of my own goals. One of the things I love about the DevOps Handbook is that there are 65 case studies within them. And almost all of them came from conferences that I attended, and at least half of them came from DevOps Enterprise Summit. So how did that happen? Whenever I was at a conference, I was always looking for people who were sharing great experience reports. I always tried to meet the people behind the transformation. These are people I've learned so much from over the years and admire. Many of these people end up presenting at DevOps Enterprise, and some of those ended up being featured in the DevOps Handbook. Okay, back to the interview. In those early years, what was the most fun moment for you as DevOps was just starting to take off? Well, this one's an easy one because I've been unfortunately or fortunately obsessed by this. But there were two. They, they always they usually found wound up in, in open spaces. Mm. Uh, and the two greatest open spaces. I'll give you the first one quick, which was it was with John Osbar was running it, and and the question was when is it okay to fire somebody? And it <laughs> was it starts off like when is it okay to fire somebody for making a mistake? And everybody in the room, like fifty or sixty people, like never. You know, okay, we're done. I'm like, no, no, wait a minute. Like, it's not that easy. 
Quick clarification. The topic of the open space was when is it okay to fire someone because they might have contributed to an outage? What if the same person makes the same mistake twice? Now the room is split in half. <laughs> half the people are like, it's still not okay to fire them. And then the other half's like, well, you know, whatever, you know. And then I said, ah, oh, we're not done yet. <laughs> what if the same person makes the same problem mistake three times in a row? So now it's just John Osbar and this one other woman from some <laughs> company in Brazil or something. And everybody else is like, nah, John, sorry. You know, like, and uh, what was funny is, um, you know, we sort of ended the meeting with this, this uh, agree to disagree. And then later we had this amazing conversation where John really started, you know, making me understand that, like, it's really never okay. And that's a longer story. But the other one was in open spaces. I think it was like this, the third DevOps days. And it was basically on theory of constraints. And, and if you remember how we met, I met you very early, you know, maybe five years into your 10 years of, of building Phoenix Project. And I, and I always say to people, you gave me this gift. I said, well, can I get an early copy? And he said, well, I think you should read this book by Elliot Gorak, The Goal, first. Said, All right, well, sure. If that's what I'm doing. You know, so I read it. And I was like, this is great. And then I read like Critical Chain and I read a bunch of his books, right? And and I remember calling you and saying, Gene, can you introduce me? And you're like, yeah, I can't. He's, he's deceased. But anyway, I was full with Gorat. Like, I would, like, that was the, the guy, the, the theory of constraints, everything. And we get into this open space and the beautiful Ben Rockwood. Yes. In, in sort of a, like, he would never do this. So, like, I'm just trying to describe almost like a tapping me on the head. Like, John, John, it all goes back to Dr. Deming. And I'm like, no, no, it's Golrad, stop, you know, no, I don't want to hear that, you know, and he's like, I'm sorry, John. And I spent the next year really trying to answer that question, and I started with my sort of Deming to DevOps, and so that probably, you know, where I am today, where I'm like sort of freakishly obsessed with Dr. Deming, um, you know, that more than any other one sort of session or, or, or moment. Uh, really. And, you know, when Beck Rockwood says something, you know, it's like the old E.F. Hutton, you know, you know, when Ben Rockwood says something, you listen, you know, so. Oh, that's great. And it's, it's, those open spaces in the DevOps days, it's such a, a great okay. format. They're amazing. Uh, yeah. So what has been uh, the most surprising thing for you since the DevOps handbook has come out? Uh, you mentioned going through the index of the DevOps handbook, and you said something just really beautiful about that. You know, I knew we were doing this, and, and I, I started looking at some of the stories again, refresh my memory, and then all these names popped up. And I thought, oh, you know what? <laughs> I want to look at all the names. And I started going through the index of the names, and I, I realized... Like, there's so much about the book. One is today it still stands. And I know the updated edition has some additional stories. But, like, the story and the narrative of the, of the DevOps handbook is rock solid today. And I think there's a lot of reasons to that. But as I think of it personally, for me, when I go through, I think the thing we did, you know, we included a lot of stories from our community. And we gave attribution everywhere, Right. And so I look through the index and I look at the names there and that's this collective group that I just, you know, like I, I think about every, almost every one of the people that I listed, like I get a smile on my face, <laughs> how much they've contributed to my career, how I've contributed there. You know, and I mean, if I, if I name a, a couple, I'm going to leave out beautiful <laughs> ones who I apologize for up front, but you know, obviously Damon, Scott Prue, Courtney, K Kissler, um, you know, Randy Shoup, Tom Limoncelli, Dominic, if I haven't said it, John Ospar, you know, we just, Josh Corman, you meet, you introduced me to Josh Corman. Josh Corman changed my life. 
I, I love Josh Corman. <laughs> You know, and, and all these people that are that are, I'm looking at his book and like it's almost like it's like a painting of my career over the last 15 years. You know, and again, I apologize for the names I've either screwed up or, or sort of missed. No, no, it's no, no, great. Um, a good call. Qualifying that by all the people we didn't mention. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, I do love that because it is really kind of an expression of kind of this collective genius of this very productive scene. Right. The genius of uh People who you know really help codify kind of the better known w- way of doing things. Well, you know, and again, Gene, I've said this to you, and I've said it to other people. I mean, you deserve an incredible amount of credit here because you know you put this sort of stake or this thing where you created this collective. You know, I mean, we've all contributed. There's no doubt, right? Like, there's no you didn't single handedly do this yourself. But I look at what you've created. I don't think the DevOps movement would be where it is today, certainly at the enterprise, without, you know, sort of Phoenix Project, without your sort of getting us all together in a great way, in the way that created the most optimum output. You know, so again, I've always sort of, you know, I feel like what you've done and, and you know, how, what you've sort of, how you brought us all. I mean, all those people I just talked about are dear friends now, and most of them, not all of them, most of them, I would not have known if it wasn't for you. Ah, man. And uh, by the way, it's been equally rewarding for me, buddy. So what is the most important thing that you've learned since the DevOps handbook has come out? Uh, you were talking about yeah, revisiting the three ways, cybernetics, variety and variation. And holy cow, it is so true. You have become one of the best scholars of Dr. W. Edwards Deming I've ever seen. So uh, I can't wait to hear how this has come together in your mind. You know, the conversation always, um, for a lot of the lean people, and people I really respect, like Marion um, Poppendick and, or uh, David J. Anderson, Don Ryman and Steen. Don Ryman, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They'll always put this line in the sand that, like, you can't really map industrial economy work to knowledge work. Right. So uh, one domain are- you work with your hands, and the other domain you work with well, your head. Well, the, <laughs> and, and, the- and their primary <laughs> argument is that um, knowledge work is novel and it can't be sort of cauterized or sort of put in, like you need the freedom. I think we started the line in the sand that starts decoupling that argument in the DevOps handbook because we described deployment lead time. Mm-hmm. To be specific, we said design development is everything to the left of code committed, and then build, test, and deploy is to the right. That's right. And, and we called deployment lead time, and I always said everything to the left of that was, was basically ideation. But, you know, the, the David J. Andersons, the Don Reinensteins, the Mary J. Parkins, I, I don't think they read that part or really got it. So even one of the podcasts I recently did with Mary, and I love Mary Tom Popper. I mean, I, I adore those two people. And what they mean is that you need to be creative, you can't be rote process. I would argue that to a certain sex, the deployment lead time is, is sort of a first-order answer to that question. Their primary argument is that knowledge economy work needs variation. And one of the things I've studied post the DevOps handbook is uh, the Toyota supply chain. And they talk about the four VLs of learning. And if you read that, they're very specific about the difference between variety and variation. <laughs> People think like Toyota was just a production line, right? No, no, they were designing cars. <laughs> like, like they were, it was heavy ideation at Toyota, and designing 
the production system, designing the assembly right, line. Exactly, yeah, <laughs> right. Thank you, thank you, and designing yeah. the production system as well. And and they made a clear distinction between, I think, the argument that we conflate. We conflate variety with with variation a lot. And when we use that argument, we say you can't have like controlled variation for um, innovative or knowledge work, right? You need to sort of create new ideas. And, and I think that, you know, and I know it's very meta what I'm saying, but like if you really look at what the 4VL and variety, variety was exactly that. It was basically an economic tool to understand how much you could stretch out your sort of variety based on the sort of the, 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 the economics of doing that, which is all about what we do in, in design development, ideation, software development. And variation is about understanding causal relationships of the things you do. The four VLs of learning. The four, first V is a velocity, right? Okay, the speed, right? We get that. That's pretty easy. Second V is visibility. Variety, variability, velocity, and visibility. And by the way, which book did you cite to cite? It's, it comes from the Toyota supply chain. It's really well described. It, it, I, I suspect that's the first place it was all described, but, but it's certainly the best description of them. So again, Velocity, visibility, right? Okay, like get it, important. Now you get into two other topics, which is variety and variation. And here's the thing I think, and I, I keep like wanting to write this in defense of variation blog article, <laughs> uh, which is I think when David J. Anderson and a lot of these people talk about you can't have variation in knowledge work. I mean, that's the core of their argument. Is One is they see variation. They say constraining variance in knowledge work is a bad thing, right? You can't, in other words, they say you can't do it and you shouldn't do it and it doesn't fit. I say, first off, you don't understand variation. Mm -hmm. There's a difference between variation and variety. So variety is more about, um, you know, Jay Bloom, who I work with, has really helped me understand the Gucci loss function. Like, so the Gucci loss function is this interesting idea where instead of tightening everything to the lowest tolerance level, you're actually finding for the edge. So a lot about tolerance is how far your upper and lower control limits can be. And then that takes in an economical concept. So, uh, you know, again, I'll do a little sort of timely shameless plug on the Jay Bloom article. We talked about epistemology there, right? And one of the things that Jabe did really well, oh, or pragmatism. He talked about this guy Pierce, who was one of the founders of pragmatism. And mm. the reason why he found, came up with pragmatism, he was trying to make the perfect pendulum. And one of the things he found out was there was a, a, a point of diminishing returns. It's like the parable of the rabbit getting road. He goes half there, and then he goes another half, and like theoretically never gets there, right? But he realized, you know what? There's a point of which, like, I should stop trying. Hmm. And that stop trying meets really the economic, and then third, which is like plays into, you know, Schuett was a pragmatist, which is... You use statistical probability to figure out where that is. And if I heard you correctly, and it's to, and you control it to the point where it makes sense, it is not the end uh, to itself. So what is variety? So I think that's where variety is. So the layman's version of variation is you tighten it, you just tighten it forever. A more expanded or sure Deming version or operations research version is statistical process control where you sort of figure out what's special cause, yep. 
variation versus common cause, and then you can work on a process to use statistics. All that came from pragmatism that came from Pierce's pendulum. I, I read one thing that said kind of variety is the things that you want. You actually do want very, you know, you want to offer a wide variety like, of uh, things to customers. You can't do that if you're dominated by variation, right? If you have internal well, variations, you, know, you can't afford a high variety. So, so when I go back and I say, here's the mismatch between sort of the, these giants who are giants, you know, David T. Anderson, Mary Poppins, you know, going on. The mismatch is, you're right that you need to measure, uh, you can't just isolate the variation of knowledge work. But, but what, what you can't do is just say knowledge work has to be just some, you know, hippie forever expanding with no controls. Right, r totally random, dominated by entropy. <laughs> <Everything>. <laughs> and even cost. Like, do you, do you allow a developer to sort of do a thousand experiments, <laughs> 10 experiments, five, yeah. you know, I mean, do you, you know, and so variety is a constraint that overlaps variation. This is my view of, I'm really going to sit down and write an article and really do it real justice. And that's why I, like, uh, I haven't written the article yet because there's a few more things I want to dive deep <laughs> in before I start taking on David J. Anderson. And, <laughs> and, uh, but, um, but the point is variety is that you also have to have controls. Mm. You can't, you don't get knowledge work for free, right? Yeah. And, and I think therein lies when they say that the sort of lean or Toyota production system can only be useful to a point yeah. and there are things in knowledge work where it won't work, I say bullcrap. Yeah. Go read Toyota sort of supply chain and understand the difference between real variation, statistical cross control, and how they describe variety. Because by the way, there was a lot of ideation going on at Toyota. Right? Right. Like, For two they things. weren't limiting the idea factories and the you know the um, the dojos and you know the things that they were doing to create incredibly innovative ideas for a new type of cars. Yeah, uh, this has been a long-standing topic uh, between me and Steven Spear. Is everyone sees the Toyota production system or the manufacturing plant? The two incredible creativity efforts are the design of the car. And the design of the manufacturing system. That's right. Incredible variety. That was knowledge work, man. Yeah. Like so. You know. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and by the way, it's so cool to hear Elon Musk, right, CEO of Tesla, say production is so much more difficult than design. Uh, the car design. Oh yeah, yeah, that, that, that totally me. I mean, like, yeah. again, oh, you know, I just, two summers ago I visited um, the Toyota factory <laughs> in, in Toyota City. It, it is incredible to see Kanban boards. First off. Yeah. Like you, like you can know it on paper. We can talk about it in presentations. When you see how you can see a Kanban from every place you are standing, you know, in the factory, in the terminal, <laughs> line, and actually get a sense of what the little color codes mean. Like you literally start seeing like where they are in production, and you know, and um. But the the other thing that there, like, as you go through the museum, you get to see sort of the um the history. Of it, you know, I wrote a, a, something about this. I called it the uh, the factoryless factory or something like that. They now, like back in the day, the way we think about it is all these sort of you know Kanban and just in time things all sort of you know clamped onto as the car comes through. Well, first of all, that's all Bluetooth, right? And it's all sort of robotic <laughs> things that are filling things up. But what they do now, and this is something they talk about in the museum, is it really is just a roadway. It's a concrete roadway. There is no Everything is dynamic. 
So, you know, all the things that were sort of the big bar thing above and mm. all the things that we saw classically, there's no infrastructure. Uh, you're saying there's no physical production line. It's actually all on conveyor. It's all uh, commercial. It's all uh, robotic. It's uh, sort of Bluetooth. It's pathway. And here's the thing. The reason they did that is they needed to, sh you know, one of the reasons is to shrink or shorten the size of the line, <laughs> depending on the sort of Kanban-ish output design. So if they need to basically make it, you know, I don't know, 1,000 feet, five, I don't know the logistics of it, shorter, because it's all dynamic, they can just do it. And if over the weekend, ripping up the floor, moving, you know, having to yeah, move all, all the, the dynamics of all these things that are not coupled now, <laughs> yeah, yeah. it just sort of fit in. And uh, you know, and and you know, and then I think you take that further, but you can basically build a factory like that. You know what <laughs> I mean? So I mean, like to your point, the innovation of how you create a production infrastructure. To Elon Musk's point, like, is you know more important than the innovation of the car you because like that's <laughs> where the numbers the numbers come from, right? I love it. So the DevOps handbook is principles and patterns. What is your favorite pattern in the DevOps handbook? Yeah, you know, I, I think the thing that I resonated the strongest right off the bat, even before I really started deeply studying systems thinking and feedback loops and complexity, which is the second way, right? And which is you know the feedback loop concept and you know probably and on court is is it's sort of mythical in in so many ways but but that idea and, and i guess here's the real key point right and and we do we do point out a fair amount of rother's work um uh, in in the devil's handbook but you know mike rother wrote toyota kata you know one of the things that he said that really helped me and you you recommended that book to me and it was great because he said that when he talked about the end on cord the way he expressed it was not only um, could anybody pull the end on cord, and, and just to be clear, it didn't mean the line stopped. There was a point at which the line would stop, but, but it, was, it was a significant event that, you know, when you're producing 2,000 cards a day mm. on the line, somebody pulling the line and potentially slowing it down or even stopping it. And the thing I loved most about that from a feedback perspective, which was Rother said, you know, when he went over there and he worked in Toyota for a little while, like, and that's why he came up with the Toyota Kata concept. He said that the floor manager, would, the first thing they would come up to you and say before they knew anything of why you stopped the line or you pulled the end on guard, which was thank you. And they wanted to thank you for creating a learning opportunity. And that it's so foreign to sort of Western thinking, right? The idea that even if you stopped the line because there was some shadow and there was nothing wrong, that was a learning opportunity, <laughs> right? And, uh, you know, I think it was Rother's story where, you know, they said um, the two stories, the one's in Rother and one in a book about the Kentucky plant, but one in Rother's book was, I think it was, the, um, you know, the, this plant was, you know, they, they'd pull, the, the end on cord would get pulled 10,000 times a day. And all of a sudden they went down to like 8,000. And, and, you know, sort of in the Western world, that'd be a celebration. Yeah, you know, 2,000 less <laughs> defects. And the plant manager pulled everybody in and said, we got a big problem here. We're not. Le we're learning twenty percent less than we were last, right? And and then there was this other great story of the Kentucky plant where they were building like two twenty two hundred cars a day, and, and the uh, the reporter or the uh, the automobile analyst said, "How do you build twenty two hundred cars a day?" He goes, "Oh, it's quite easy. We pull the end on cord five thousand times a day." <laughs> and and that is the sort of core of why 
you know, why we think about feedback loops, why we think they're important, why they create psychological, why creating a psychologically safe environment for people to sort of metaphorically pull an end on cord anytime, anywhere, any person, any gender, because it is a learning opportunity, you know? So yeah, I think that's the pattern. I love it. Last question. Maybe. <laughs> 50 case studies in the DevOps handbook, now heading to 75. Which one is your favorite case study? Well, I never answer questions simply. If I had to be pinned, I would say uh, it's uh, Courtney's. You know, I've said this before. I just love, coming from a mainframe background, the, the, the story of, you know, and I always sort of ruined the story. I probably should have reread it so I remember <laughs> it all three. You always fix it up for me. But, but it was a mainframe application, and it was always sort of blamed for latency problems. <laughs> and um, every year they'd have these discussions about, you know, oh, we got to get rid of that and all that. And one of the things that is great about Courtney, you know, I'm just such a, I know you are, which is such huge fans of Courtney and Courtney Kissler in so many ways, is you know, she took such a pragmatic approach. She went and said, you know, there's these things called value stream mapping. And, you know, why can't we mix the two? Like, you know, like, you know, the, the sort of the Gartner bimodal, like, no, no, you know, don't even, you know, she just applied value stream. And what they found, it was basically a Java, you know, it was, it was a, a manual process that basically could be fixed with sort of, I don't know, 40 or 50 lines of code, right? Yeah. And, 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 and like, it was gone. I mean, that, that whole latency issue was, was up table. And it's that kind of thinking. I remember reading this just a little bit ago. Uh, so the issue was that there was a form on the 3270 screen, presumably. They were asking a floor manager for information they didn't have, like employee ID number. <laughs> and so they would uh, make a little note to say, I'll do it when I'm in the front of my PC in the back. Yeah, you had to go up to the, another floor to actually get the data, right? Yeah, right. Yeah. And, and so of course, uh, they wrote a... A simple web app so that they stopped asking for that information, uh, made it easier for the store floor manager to input the information, and boom, no one's complaining about the mainframe application anymore. That, so, to that's your point. systems thinking. That's systems thinking, right? That's not looking at, like, well, mainframes are not DevOps. You know, we can't really do value stream mapping, right? Like, today, I think people are pretty, young. but when she did that, like, there was sort of advanced thinking to actually do that kind of exercise with a mainframe application. And then the other one that, you know, I, you asked me for one, but like, I can't leave out Scott Prue's journey mm. at CSG. I mean, I, I tell people today when they're beginning their journey, <laughs> go watch, I don't know what the first one was, 2014 or... That's right. I said, you, you, you get this glorious view of where you were are now. <laughs> watch him every year. And you get to see, you know, he comes back and like, it's different and it's better. And, and it, you know, and, and you know, Scott, like, it's like, it's methodical, it's truth. It's so I always think that I love his journey. And for us to all see that um, year after, year. you know, many times we talk about like, should we have repeat speakers or, you know, in the balance of that. But, you know, the argument always for what Scott does is just every year you get to see his journey and it's always better than the last year. And it's just this beautiful, continuous improvement story. Yeah. Love it. And I, I love that story too, just because I think one can make the claim, if you can do it with the technology stack that he had, <laughs> it really says you can do it for anything. Awesome. Uh, is there anything else you, uh, uh, tell us about the podcast. Uh, tell us about what you've been doing it's blowing me away just to what extent you are studying Deming. Yeah. What have, uh, what's been the funnest thing that you've learned? 
Well, you've told me, you know, for many years now, you ought to write a book about Deming, you ought to write about Deming. And then I've been, you know, in my mind, I've always kind of created an outline over the last 10 years, and I've grabbed great stories. And when the pandemic came, I realized I was getting this gift of about 50 or 60 hours a month of non-travel. Huh. And, uh, you know, I figured, let's like, use that time. So I've gotten much more serious about really understanding the narrative of, you know, his impact everywhere. You know, so I've got a podcast that's profound. It's called Profound, based off of the idea of system profound knowledge, which is was his last sort of theory. And then I've been writing a blog, sort of supplemental to that, just these interesting stories. So I've just, if you follow those, you'll just get some really good, beautiful. I interviewed, uh, you know, different people, not just people in our industry, but like I, I interviewed the guy who wrote a book about Hawthorne, right? Like he has nothing to do with IT. He was a librarian science. He's a professor of library science. And he wrote a book about Hawthorne, and he just told me all the glorious stories about Hawthorne and Cicero, which was the plant where Dr. Schuett invented statistical cross-trolls, where Deming did his intern. But, um, you know, so, Gene, I was telling you the other day, I find all these glorious stories, and, and I've got them all compiled. You know, hopefully near the end of the year, I'll have something in a form where people can read it. But I just read one the other day, again, these glorious stories. So you got to remember, when Dr. Deming, when Dr. Deming went to Japan and influenced part of what they call the, um, the miracle in Japan. Like he wasn't the only person. So, but, but he had impact, right? He was 50 years old, right? That's the thing. I don't think, you know, like people get the, the deal. Like that was when he was 50. He does, he comes back to America and he's basically obscure. Nobody really knows who he is in America. And then there's this documentary on NBC that just explodes. And it's called if Japan can, why can't we? Right? That's 1980. Yeah. 1980. Right. Yeah. So, and what's interesting is at this point, you know, I was, I had a car. I was like 1980. I'm like 19 years old, 18 years old. And you knew this whole, like, the, like you didn't, everything was Japan, not just cars. I mean, it was memes. You basically figured that if you were going to go work, you were going to work for, for a Japanese company. It was just like, they had won. They won this war. TVs, VCRs, cameras. Cars, you know, manufacturing, (laughs) even sort of like, even these sort of uh, cultural references of like Die Hot with the, 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 like the big building. It's all like, (laughs) you know. uh, Plaza. (laughs) Yeah, right. Like, I mean, like, that was it. That's how people thought. Like, that was the state of the art was, if you were going to talk about the most interesting company, it was a Japanese company. So this (laughs) thing comes on in like the last seven minutes or so, is Dr. Deming and everybody in the country is listening. It's like, oh my goodness, it was an American that taught them how to do this. So um, the Donald Peterson, the president of Ford, invites him to Ford. Then this thing about, but starting about '83, you know, I'm calling it Deming mania, right? Like from '83 to '90. So he's 83 years old, and he, I, I think, it was like upon the number, how many people he trained in a 10 year period it was like ridiculous, like a million people. And so here's an 83-year-old guy flying all over the world teaching his four days with Deming, right? At 93, so I was just reading this story. I I wrote a small blog article about 93 years old, about a couple of months before he died. He's given his four days with Deming. On the last day, I mean, he's got an oxygen tank. I mean, he's sick. He's 100 pounds. And one of his students come up to him and say, you know, we don't mind if you sort of you know, leave for the rest of the day. Nobody will matter. You know, get some rest. You're coughing. You're, you know, and, and you know, he's 93. He's about two months from dying. His body is shutting down. And his response was, I have a responsibility hmm. to teach people this stuff at 93. And, you know, like, 
I don't know. You know, I mean, like, you know, and then, you know, and then apparently two weeks before he died, he was teaching his four days with Deming <laughs> in a Los Angeles seminar, right? Like, like, and, and like, he didn't do it for the money. I mean, he lived in a, like, you know, his, he had really nothing. He lived in a small house outside of the, I mean, he felt a response. I think, you know, again, not to sort of say we're Deming or anywhere near the spectrum of Deming, but I, I get that sort of kinship of like a lot of what you do, what I do, what Jez Humble does, what Nicole does, what Damon does. Uh, we do it really because we feel, you said this, and I know you you may cut out all the cool stuff that I say about <laughs> you, but, but you said this many times in your early days, you know, John, I, you know, I want to improve the lives of millions of people. And I, and I, I remember that when, when the first times we met, you know, and and I think, you know, like, I feel such a kinship with him in that regard. You know, and that to me was one of the most beautiful stories is like, at the, even at that point, he's like, no, no, you know, I know. I mean, he wasn't saying it, but I know I'm going to die. But like, <laughs> I have a responsibility to take every last breath I have to try to help. Love it. <laughs> Keep up the great work, John. Yeah. Thank you. And that is our show. Thank you for listening. For updates on new episodes and the lineup for next year's season, please go to itrevolution.com and sign up for our newsletter. Up next will be my interview of the two other DevOps Handbook co-authors, Jez Humble and Dr. Nicole Forsgren. The Ideal Cast is produced by IT Revolution, where our goal is to help technology leaders succeed and their organizations win through books, events, podcasts, and research.